BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. The Ford F-150 truck drives smart design forward. The standard 12-inch productivity screen helps you get what you need done too. And the available pro-access tailgate improves access to bed and cargo and utilization of the bed, including when towing a trailer. Together with a wider bumper step, it's easier to access the bed and load in tight spaces. An available ProPower onboard serves as a mobile power source, providing up to 7.2 kilowatts of power to charge a bed full of electric dirt bikes or run an entire job site worth of tools. I'm still driving my 2016 F-150 truck and 90,000 miles in. As long as I keep it clean, it honestly still looks brand new. I've taken it down snow-covered forest service roads, taken it out camping, put a ton of miles on it on the freeway, had five adults in the cabin for long trips, and it's been great everywhere. Super dependable. I still love the way it looks, nice and rugged design, but with a super comfortable interior. And I'm still very happy with the quality sound system and heated seats. And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. Randy Kraft, the scorecard killer, originally called the Southern California Strangler by the press, with some of his murders attributed to the freeway killer before he was caught, Kraft brutally tortured most of his victims before strangling them, most of the time. At least one had his head bashed in. He also emasculated several of his victims while they were still alive. This episode, once again, is full of some particularly brutal depictions of sexual violence. Kraft also left behind a disturbing signature in numerous crime scenes that helped distinguish him from several other serial killers active at the same time and in the same area. A single bloody sock inserted in an especially disturbing place. Kraft was both brutal and extremely prolific. He was officially convicted of 16 murders, but prosecutors filed a list of 45 victims they were positive he was responsible for killing. Now it's believed he killed a total of 67 people at least. Kraft murdered over a long period of time from the fall of 1971 to the spring of 1983. He targeted young men and boys, often either hitchhikers or random men coming and going from various gay bars in Orange County, California. He may have known some of them, most were strangers. Randy got away with brazen crimes for a long, long time, but then finally, thankfully, his luck ran out. When some California Highway Patrol officers pulled Kraft over for drunk driving on May 14th, 1983, they were shocked to find not just a drunk driver, but a dead body in the passenger seat. They knew this was no typical DUI, but they also didn't immediately think they'd caught a serial killer. But police would quickly learn that Randy was responsible for a lot more dead bodies than the one with him in the vehicle. Inside Kraft's car, they found Randy's scorecard, a list with 61 cryptic entries, things like two-in-one hitch and oil. They soon came to believe that each of these 61 entries represented a murder or a double murder, and prosecutors began working to match each entry with an unsolved homicide or homicide cases of disappearance or disappearances. Murder charges started piling up over the following days and weeks. Kraft's family and friends were shocked. How could this seemingly quiet, hardworking, intelligent man be such a brutal killer? They had no idea because Randy Kraft was a master of compartmentalization. By the end, he was living three lives. 
He presented one to his coworkers, another to his friends, family, and boyfriends, and a very dark monster of a third uh, to, in all likelihood, over 60 unlucky, unlucky boys and men he crossed paths with. Who's the real Randy Kraft? Who were his victims? What did he do to them? Has he ever explained why he did what he did? We're going to look into all this and more in another true crime, serial killing, you truly don't always know the people around you like you think you do edition of Time Suck. This is Michael McDonald, and you're listening to Time Suck. Happy Monday, Meat Sacks. Uh, welcome to the Cult of Curious. I'm Dan Cummins, the master sucker, the Earl of Suckingshire, Black Lord Bounty Hunter, Sword Fighter, Jedi type guy. And you are listening to Time Suck. Uh, Hail Nimrod, Hail Lucifina, Praise Bull Jangles, and Glory Be to Triple M. Couple quick announcements and then another show. Back from vacation, feeling recharged. Uh, got a lot to do to get ready for the uh, the big uh, Bad Magic Summer Camp. Wet hot, but what a fun reason to be busy. I uh, got to see Rage Against the Machine, run the Jewels, Madison Square Garden uh, at the end of vacation. Holy shit, was that an incredible concert? Uh, Lindsay, a true Rage fan now. Run the Jewels, also great. Love them. Uh, Rage, legendary. Left their show inspired to make uh, my stand up better. Actually, more more challenging. And thinking about all this stuff here, too. Uh, yeah, just a very, very uh, cool experience. Uh, less than a month away from resuming the Symphony of Insanity Tour for the rest of the year. It'll bring a, a wee bit of rage with me. Uh, kicking off the uh, fall in Alabama. Huntsville on Thursday, September 8th. Nashville that weekend, September 9th and 10th. Then off to South Florida a few weeks later, right between Miami and Fort Lauderdale, September 23rd and 24th. Palm Beach on the 25th. Boston, October 6th, 7th and 8th. Grand Rapids, Michigan, October 21st and 22nd. And then just outside of Grand Rapids in Holland, Michigan on the 23rd. Then it's Austin, Texas, Louisville, Kentucky, Portland, Oregon. Finishing the fallout in Minneapolis at the Parkway Theater for a few prep shows. Then special taping the weekend of December 9th and 10th. Uh, Link to tickets. More info at dancummins.tv. Also, uh, another fun accessory in the Bad Magic store this week. Head on over to badmagicmerch.com. Check out the new Hail Nimrod license plate. Sweet 12 by 6 vanity plate for your car, truck, semi, ice cream truck, school bus, moped, candy van. I don't know. Whatever you're fucking driving. Even your Winnebago. Especially your Winnebago. So pop over and check it out. And now enough pleasantries. Uh, let us explore the dark side of human nature once again by taking a peek at the extremely dark life of dirty boy Randy Kraft. Randy Kraft, a bad, bad guy. Convicted of 16 murders, sentenced to death. Unfortunately, still alive. Seems to be pretty healthy, happy as well, based on the most recent picks and interviews. So that's unfortunate. Uh, over 30 years later, he remains on death row. Uh, almost, uh, you know, three decades later, still just won't own up to what he did. Kraft has consistently and completely denied uh, doing anything. He didn't do anything wrong. He didn't murder anybody. Uh, he denies murdering his victims, been reluctant to talk about uh, anything criminal. He's been framed. Uh, unlike many other serial killers, he has not agreed to do many interviews. The few he's done, he's only discussed how he is for sure innocent, how he was railroaded by a homophobic criminal justice system. He wasn't. He's beyond guilty of being more demon than man. Many suspect that his own issues with his sexuality, which we'll discuss in the timeline, contributed to the killings, or at least helped him get away with them. He got very used to hiding who he was as a kid, and then his, uh, you know, hit his new nature for years as a serial killer, and has continued to try and hide it in prison ever since his capture. Some people just refuse to ever admit to anyone who they actually are, even to themselves. Randy seems to be the epitome of that person. 
Randy Kraft targeted young men age 18 to 25, oftentimes Marines specifically. Uh, maybe he was mad that the military kicked him out for being gay. Maybe a form of payback gave him a little extra motivation to hunt, rape, torture, and kill the, the few and the proud. Whatever the reason, over and over again, Randy picked up male victims, drugged them, raped them, tortured them, almost always strangled them. Kraft's murder trial, mostly because he was charged with so many murders, would be Orange County's most expensive ever. Despite so much evidence against him, Kraft would insist he was innocent, even telling the judge, I have not murdered anyone, and I believe a reasonable review of the record will show that. Now, uh, his repeated refusal to take accountability for what he did uh, made people sick. Everyone knew he did it, and the nature of his crimes were so unbelievably brutal. As bad as it gets, Judge Donald A. McCartan said at Kraft's sentencing hearing, I can't imagine doing these things in scientific experiments on a dead person, much less someone alive. How was he able to commit brutal and bloody murders for over a decade in a heavily populated area? As we discussed in the William Bonin episode, Suck 263, Billy Gutterballs. Uh, there was a lot of murder going down in Southern California when Kraft was doing what he went to prison for. There were several active serial killers in the late 70s and early 80s going after the same victims in the same general area. William Bonin, uh, Patrick Carney, in addition to Randy. All three thought to be one serial killer for a while, the freeway killer. They came to their victims for a long while. Detectives couldn't tell who was killing who, but eventually law enforcement would realize there were multiple killers. Many of the ones later found to be Randy's victims shared some disturbing similar characteristics. His victims were often burned with a car cigarette lighter. One victim had his eyeballs quote unquote destroyed with a fucking cigarette lighter. Some of them had their genitals removed. Many had objects shoved into their rectums deep uh, specifically, numerous men had a sock shoved into their rectum after other things had been shoved in there. Most of them had been drugged, given a, a deadly combination of Valium and alcohol. And several of the victims had frequented the gay bar Ripples, where Kraft was a frequent customer and uh, was seen the night they disappeared. Kraft's killing spree began in 1971, started ramping up in 1975, and then continued steadily outside of a few small gaps when he seemed to have stabilized for some reason until his arrest in 1983. On December 6, 1979, police reporter Tim Alger for the Orange County, Orange County Register wrote about Randy's killing spree. Uh, Alger noted that the police had stopped sharing details about certain murder victims with the public, writing, The investigators refused to give many details of the murders that may link a single suspect to several or all of the killings. They talk of possibilities and possible leads, and when asked about links between the murders, a detective responded, That could be. I can't say one way or another, but it's always a possibility. On January 10th, 1980, journalist J.J. Maloney began working for the OC Register. Editor Marv Olson assigned him to work on what seemed to be a developing serial killer case. Maloney contacted forensic pathologist Dr. Albert Rosenstein for help. And then on March 24th, 1980, the OC Register published a story titled Freeway Killer Cruises for Murder. Giving the serial killer a name had been Olson's idea. He hoped it would spark interest in the murders, and it did. Suddenly, radio and TV stations were reporting on the freeway killer. Another freeway killer... Patrick Carney, the SoCal murder, first dubbed the freeway killer, had already been caught in 1977. But now three years later, male bodies just kept showing up alongside Southern California pavement. At the time, the media didn't know that now two men were targeting similar victims at the same time. Two other freeway killers, Billy Gutterballs Bonin, uh, Randy the Scorecard Killer Kraft, still on the hunt. Bonin would be nabbed in 1980, and then still more bodies would keep turning up. Kraft, last of the freeway killers, wouldn't be caught until 1983, and then his arrest would receive the least amount of press of the three, even though he almost certainly killed the most people and was just as torturous to his victims as the very brutal William Bonin, if not more torturous. 
So why did he receive less press? Perhaps because his murders unfolded more slowly. The LA Times wrote, The complicated, torturous investigation that led Orange County prosecutors to file the charges they have against Kraft unfolded with little of the sensation and fanfare that have surrounded other serial murder cases. There was none of the public hysteria that accompanied the recent Night Stalker case or the Atlanta child murders of the early 1980s. For Kraft was in jail while investigators were working quietly and meticulously to link him to one unsolved murder after another. As a result, the magnitude of Kraft's alleged crimes has received little public attention. James A. Sidebotham, chief investigator for the Orange County Sheriff's Department in the Randy Kraft serial murder case, called the case an investigator's nightmare. So how are we going to structure this nightmare of an episode today? Uh, Couldn't be more straightforward. All chronological. We'll discuss Randy Kraft's early life and how his sexuality affected him in young adulthood. We'll cover the confirmed and suspected victims and the infamous scorecard, the record he kept of his kills that gave him his murderous nickname. And we'll do all that in today's uh, quite long Time Suck Timeline. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a Time Suck Timeline. Randy Stephen Kraft, born March 19th, 1945 in Long Beach, California. Randy's parents were Harold and Opal. Harold and Opal Kraft, born in 1906 and 1908, respectively. Uh, Opal worked as a waitress, Harold is a cook at, uh, at a standard oil field. They met in the company cafeteria. And then they laid down later and fucked atop the potato salad next to the pork and beans. And that was how Randy was conceived. Or they probably conceived Randy in bed in the missionary position, neither fully undressed nor passionately kissing or even making direct eye contact. The only sound in the room is squeaky mattress that squeaked for about 45 seconds. That's how I picture a Harry and Opal getting it on. I have no idea what really happened. Uh, Not a lot is known about the nature of their marriage. They do stay married throughout Randy's childhood and are still married when he goes to prison. Maybe they're the happiest couple. Kraft's college classmate and former friend Russell Chung recalled that it was obvious to visitors that Opal and Harold didn't get along very well. But maybe Russell Chung is a fucking liar. And you can tell him I said that if he's still alive. I don't know Russell. I'm just guessing. He probably wasn't lying. Why would he lie? Uh, They get along well enough to fuck at least four times though. Hello, Safina? Maybe? Kind of? Randy was the youngest of four children. He had three sisters, Kay, Doris, and Jeanette. Except for maybe being born completely evil, Randy was a perfectly healthy baby just like his sisters. And at least from what siblings, other family members, and old classmates and old friends have said, he was a good kid. No warning signs. No obvious red flags that he was a fucking psychopath or a sexual sadist, like we've seen with so many other serial killers we've covered. From what we know, he didn't torture small animals, uh, didn't rape other kids. Also, again, from what we know, uh, was never abused himself physically, sexually, or otherwise. Seemed normal as a kid, all-American even. Kraft's family had moved from Wyoming to California after the start of World War II, not long before his birth. Randy's sisters were all born in Wyoming. Harold left for California in 1941. Opal followed a year later once he found work. Randy's sisters doted on baby brother. They loved taking care of him. Doris, who was a dozen years older, told LA investigative reporter Dennis McDougal, Author of the definitive source on Randy, Angel of Darkness, I used to rock him in my arms and sing him to sleep as a baby. He was a very calm baby. If only he'd stayed calm. Baby boy developed some real rage at uh, one point, some point in his childhood. Uh, 1948, Papa Harold Kraft uh, purchased a small wood-framed house on Beach Boulevard in Westminster, California. The home was in a small community called Midway City, an unincorporated square mile of land on the Westminster border. It had previously been used as a Women's Army Corps barracks. Harold refurbished the house into a chicken ranch, raised his family there. 
Funny to think there were chicken ranches in Westminster as recently as the 40s and 50s. Uh, today, it's nothing but suburbia. A couple huge malls, lots of houses, the highest concentration of Vietnamese people of any city in all of North America. 40% of Westminster's population is Vietnamese American. In the 80s, tens of thousands of Vietnamese refugees fled to Orange County's Little Saigon, which straddles the border of Garden Grove in Westminster. Around 200,000 Vietnamese Americans live in Orange County now. Back when Randy was born, Westminster wasn't even incorporated. That didn't happen until 1957. When he was a kid, there were still chicken farms, some orange groves, so many fucking goldfish. Seriously, the world's largest goldfish farm. Uh, The farm stood where Westminster Mall stands today. At one time, the Pacific Goldfish Farm was 40 acres big and had over 700,000 fish. That is a lot of carnival prizes. Anyone else win a little plastic bag with a goldfish in it at a carnival game as a kid? Mine lived about a week. Uh, my ex-wife Heather won a goldfish when she was a little kid and that fucker lived until she went to college. <laughs> she was pissed. She didn't know that winning some uh, game in grade school would give her a pet to take care of for the rest of her childhood. Uh, maybe little Randy had some goldfish, little baby boy. While Randy wasn't allegedly, uh, while Randy wasn't allegedly beaten, uh, he did get hurt as a kid a few times. When he was still just a year old, he broke his collarbone when he fell off the couch. When he was two, he fell down a flight of stairs, got knocked unconscious. Despite his clumsiness... Randy uh, was reportedly very intelligent. An employer who tested him found that his IQ was 129, which puts him roughly in the top 3 to 4% of society. Kraft's legal team would try and argue, though, that his brain no work too good. They'd bring in a neuroscientist to testify that he had brain damage from some random injuries, like that fall down the stairs when he was two. But if that's what made him a monster, why didn't any poor impulse control manifest itself until he was an adult? Makes no sense to me. But I'm no, uh, no neuroscientist. No neuroscientists. I, I do get confused all the time with, you know, with neuroscientists, though. People all the time in public are like, hey, are you a neuroscientist? I'm like, no, nah, I get that a lot. But nope, just a guy who's capable, could probably do it if he wanted to. I don't know. I don't know what I'm talking about right now. Uh, Finance-wise, when Randy was growing up, the Kraft family was uh, never on the edge of getting kicked out onto the street, but they never were flush with cash either. Harold and Opal often struggled to pay the bills, which had to have led to uh, a lot of stress, which probably led to some arguments. All pretty normal, though. Harry worked as an assembly line uh, worker at Douglas Aircraft for the duration of Randy's childhood. Started off in oil, made it into the aviation industry. Uh, Opal took on a variety of different jobs to make extra income. Uh, Worked as a sewing machine operator, cooked and cleaned for the 17th Street Elementary and Junior High School in Westminster. Also volunteered as a PTA officer at Midway City Elementary School. Randy went to both. She mainly worked there uh, to be close to baby boy while he's going to school. Opal always uh, also made sure that Randy got lots of attention. She baked cookies for Randy's uh, Cub Scout meetings, whatever he was involved in. She showed up for all the games. While Harold was described as a distant father, which, you know, very typical for the times. Uh, Opal Craft especially devoted to her children, very active in their lives, especially young Randy. He's very close with his mother and his sisters growing up. So it sounds like he had a solid childhood. Uh, if having an emotionally distant father is the worst you had of it growing up, well, you have it pretty fucking good compared to much of the world. Uh, Opal and her children were also dedicated members of First Presbyterian Church in Westminster. Doris sang in the choir. Opal was uh, chosen as the chairman of the deacons committee. Kay taught Bible study classes. Harold, uh, he uh, he didn't give a shit about church. He didn't show up. Not his thing. Probably enjoyed a break from both work and his his family on Sundays. Randy attended Midway City Elementary School, then 17th Street School for junior high at the time, and then the brand new Westminster High School. He was a member of the first graduating class of Westminster High School. His high school friends noticed that growing up, Randy was politically minded and uh, very politically conservative. One said, somewhere to the right of Attila the Hun. Nice. Uh, My gut says he got that from his dad. Played the saxophone in the band, also played tennis. I also played saxophone in band. 
First chair alto sax, seventh and eighth grade. Don't be impressed. I think a total of two kids, me being one of them, me and Jason Sabasco, wanted to play saxophone. Neither one of us were any good. Uh, I could really knock out the basic chorus to Good Vibrations and Uptown Girl, though, at high school basketball games. Guessing Randy would have uh, not been impressed. And it was probably a lot better than I was. Overall, Randy was considered a nice kid. Friends, neighbors, family, former classmates, all totally shocked when they learned he was a serial killer. Like so many serial killers, dude was a master at compartmentalization. Maybe he hid his budding serial killer persona really well growing up. Maybe his brain was damaged, but also worked well enough for him to hide who he was truly year after year, decade after decade. No, no cruelty to animals that we know of, but, but perhaps they just never caught him. Perhaps he did have violent fantasies he was harboring. We'll never know, seeing how, uh, you know, to this day, he just continues to refuse to admit he's done anything. Clarence E. Haynes, who graduated with, uh, with Randy at Westminster High School, told the LA Times, you know those guys who always carried a slide rule with them everywhere? The bright guys? Randy was one of them. Other people actually used to carry around a slide rule. All right. <laughs> just a late 1950s, early 60s stereotypical nerd, just straight out of central casting. Craft childhood friends described him as kind, a gentleman, quiet, and intelligent. Kay Frazel, who had a crush on Randy in junior high, said, Randy would always help you with your homework. Randy would be in the top five in our class who I would never believe could be involved in something like this. Paul Whitson, longtime classmate and friend, said, We were called eggheads. <laughs> we were very much uh, interested in learning. We enjoyed our classes and we enjoyed long conversations about our school work. Also love that kids were literally called eggheads back then. I imagine bullies like Biff from Back to the Future taunting them. Nice, nice slide rule, eggheads. Now give me your lunch money or get a wet willy dweebs. Love those old timey uh, uh, bully terms. Randy was best friends with uh, two boys named Billy Manson. No relation to Charlie that we know of. Uh, Paul Whitson. Randy and Billy wanted to be Republican senators when they grew up. Randy, a lot of his friends, yeah, very conservative. Westminster at the time, small, very conservative town with a lot of traditional values. During the 1960 presidential election, Randy, Billy, and Paul staunchly supported Richard Nixon's campaign. They despised Kennedy. And that is when people should have started to be suspicious about Randy. Teen boys preferring Tricky Dick to JFK. Teen boys picking a guy who looked like someone who just hit rock bottom would still think twice about sucking his dick for some crack instead of favoring the guy who slept with Marilyn Monroe. Not saying JFK was an overall uh, good dude, by the way, but he was a war hero with some rock star appeal. Good looking guy, gifted orator. Nixon was a veteran, but a, a, you know, desk job in comparison to JFK's combat role. Nixon did not have rock star appeal at all. Looked like he'd been built in a lab that made untrustworthy politicians. Nevertheless, Randy and his two buddies, they were highly intelligent. Their state intelligence scores labeled them as mentally gifted minors. Paul Whitson said that Randy was always calm and rational and usually only got frustrated during political arguments. Randy wasn't one of the popular kids in school or part of the Sosh crowd, as they were called, or Sosh, Sosh, excuse me, the Soshes, short for social. Uh, but he wasn't an outcast either. And there are no stories of him being bullied. He liked to hang out with the other smart kids at Carolina's Pizza after school. Randy didn't have a lot of girlfriends, which is not terribly surprising since he, uh, he was gay. Uh, but he and his friends did go to dances and prom with different dates. Randy later said that he began to realize he was gay in high school. He didn't know how to express himself or the right words to describe his feelings, but he knew that when he went on dates with girls, it just didn't feel right. By the time Randy was in high school, all his sisters had left home and got married. Randy had a pretty sweet setup now at home. He had his own room, his own car, fun job for a teenager. He worked as a fry cook at Dwight's, a hamburger stand near the pier at Huntington Beach, right on Pacific Coast Highway, PCH. Uh, Dwight's is still there, if you want to check it out. Been in the same location for 90 years, since 1932. Maybe one of you listening is uh, working there now as a fry cook, just like one of America's worst serial killers used to do. Maybe you uh, worked there for Jack Clapp, 
like Dwight did. Jack, son of Dwight, ran Dwight's for decades. Maybe want to stop in and grab a bite, try their famous cheese strips, local favorite. But enough about Dwight's and their tasty food and delicious soft serve ice cream. Uh, During their freshman year of high school, Randy and his friends convinced a teacher to found uh, a Westminster World Affairs Club. Randy wrote essays for its college prep classes, and he'd win several awards in essay contests. Probably didn't write uh, any essays about wanting to sexually torture and kill other young dudes, though. Uh, Randy's teachers considered him outgoing and pleasant and appreciated that he uh, always did his work. Well, most of his teachers considered him outgoing and pleasant and appreciated his work. But not Lee Manley. Uh Uh-uh. No one. And I mean fucking no one. Fools, Lee Manley. Oh, you think you can pull the wool over Lee Manley's eyes? You can go get fucked. You're delusional. But for real, uh, Mr. Manley, his chemistry teacher, did not care for Randy. Failed him in one of his classes, his only F. Years later, he told investigative reporter Dennis McDougal, he was one of those people who felt that the rules didn't apply to him. He was never short of ability, but he sort of made his own rules. What struck me at the time was that he wouldn't do the work in chemistry, and it wasn't because he wasn't able to. It's just that he decided he was going to graduate and nobody was going to stop him from graduating. But he almost didn't graduate, did he, Mr. Manley? Because you almost stopped him. Like I said, no one fools Lee Manley fucking ever. Uh, What if Randy's entire serial killing spree was based on getting that F in chemistry? Like it really chapped his ass. He He just had to keep killing Mr. Manley over and over again. Why not? People have done weirder shit. Uh, June 13th, 1963, Randy Kraft graduates from Westminster High School, overcoming Mr. Manley's obvious attempt to destroy his entire fucking life. He was 10th out of a class of 390. Probably would have been a valedictorian if it wasn't for his cunt of a chemistry teacher. Uh, uh, Kraft enrolled at uh, Claremont Men's College now, where he'd been awarded an academic scholarship. After graduation, Randy went with his mother to the Boy Scout summer camp in the San Jacinto Mountains, or Jacinto I didn't look up. I thought I had that one. I'm going to say San, uh, San Jacinto. It's probably how it's pronounced by a lot of people. Uh, uh, I was working as a cook for the camp. I can picture the sign for these mountains in my head. Just never thought about how to say it. Uh, he was hired to uh, torture, rape, and kill some of the Boy Scouts. No. Uh, but how creepy is it that this future killer of boys and men is uh, working at a Boy Scout camp right after high school? Uh, one camper later recalled feeling like something was off with Randy. Steve Manley. Manley told the reporter uh, McDougal, I didn't trust him. I didn't like him. I'm not puritanical, but I have a certain moral feeling about things, and Randy didn't fit well. It was the kind of person who'd say one thing to the parents and then do the all, do almost the opposite. An Eddie Haskell type. I got the feeling that he didn't uh, that he did enough to be surface unblemished. I didn't ever feel comfortable around him, and I never understood why. Oh man, love a Leave It to Beaver reference. Eddie Haskell. Eddie, such a little worm. Always kissing up to Mrs. Cleaver. Always talking about her lovely dress, Mrs. Cleaver. But that little wise ass was a phony. Always calling the beef stuff like Squirt or Gertrude when Ward and June weren't looking. Also, uh, was Steve Manley related to Lee Manley? That connection's never made in sources, but uh, it seems like a weird coincidence. The fucking Manleys. They don't fall for people's bullshit. None of them. Uh, Kraft joined the ROTC at Claremont. Initially, he supported the Vietnam War, supported conservative presidential candidate Barry Goldwater in the 1964 election. Also kept quiet about his sexuality, a sexuality that many of the politicians he admired openly uh, despised. A sexuality that the faculty of the college he attended also despised. That had to have felt a bit strange. Gay men were not accepted at Claremont College. Uh, They were not accepted in a lot of places in 1960s America. Former Claremont classmate uh, Russell, hopefully not a liar, Chung, uh, would tell McDougal, first of all, in the 60s, homosexuality was not accepted. Everyone was still in the closet. 
In the 60s, you had an image of a homosexual as someone who was uh, effeminate and had a strange mannerisms. And you didn't suspect someone who appeared to be straight had a hidden secret life. That was completely something that you just wouldn't imagine at that time. 1965, Randy, now 20 years old, began to lean left in his politics, at first just secretly, outwardly, still claimed a strong interest in conservative politicians. But then like a dirty fucking lazy hippie, he grew his hair out. Also got a part-time job at a gay bar. Uh, He kept this job from his campus friends, kept his new secret life away from campus too. He begins actively leading a double life now. Some of his friends notice the time he starts uh, dabbling in Valium as well, starts taking a lot. Claims it's for stomach pains and migraines, and maybe that's what he was using it for at the time. But soon he'll use it to drug his victims, combine it with alcohol to render his victims helpless to defend themselves from his attacks over and over again. I wonder if around this time he's, he's at least starting to think, oh shit, this really knocks you on your ass. So helpless. God, I could, uh, I could knock someone else on their ass. I could do anything to them. I also wonder more speculation here if someone used Valium on him at some point. Maybe he was drugged and raped. And then he went on to uh, reclaim some feeling of power and control, identifying as the aggressor, not the victim, when he does it to others over and over again. I don't know. I doubt it. Uh, He probably just had some kind of aha moments and started going Bill Cosby on some people and then taking it further and further. Uh, By his junior year, there were rumors that Randy had a fondness for bondage at the gay bar where he worked. Also interesting, uh, where his uh, future murderers full of tying men and sexually torturing them while he raped them before he killed them, uh, were they partly inspired by bondage fantasies, too dark and deadly for any willing participant to ever accept. His Claremont College roommate noticed that he often disappeared a few times a week and came back at odd hours. Whatever Randy was doing, he kept it a secret. The roommate said, what he did was something he wanted you, uh, what he did wasn't something he wanted you to know about. Randy's quoted as saying of his life around the time, I was a poll watcher at a precinct in Pomona even though I wasn't old enough to vote. It was probably the last gasp of the conservative ideology. I wasn't that upset about the loss. My heart wasn't in it. Of course, the summer before that election, I had an affair with the black guy and that had thrown much of my beliefs into chaos. Ah, Mike, I really loved him and cared for him. Took him home to meet mom and dad. What an awkward meeting. 1966, Kraft moved off campus with a male roommate. Rumors that, uh, that that both men, you know, were secretly homosexual. Kraft was also arrested for lewd conduct in Huntington Beach in 1966 after he propositioned a male undercover police officer posing as a gay prostitute. With no prior record, Randy was able to get the charges against him dismissed. Kraft continued spending time at gay bars. Kraft was supposed to graduate in June of 1967, but he was a class short, just a few credits short. He partied too hard, neglected his studies, ended up having to repeat a class, and uh, he would graduate eight months later. 1968, Kraft graduates from Claremont Men's College with a bachelor's degree in economics. By this point, he'd shifted over to the Democratic side of politics, now volunteering for Robert Kennedy's campaign. Kraft would later receive a personally signed letter from Bobby Kennedy for his work on the campaign. Then Kraft joined the Air Force a few days after Kennedy was assassinated on November 22, 1963. Would not last long in the military. He'll only serve one year in the Air Force. He uh, spent most of it at Edwards Air Force Base, just north of L.A., where he supervised the painting of test planes. He was quickly given high security clearance because of his clean background checks and high aptitude scores. After starting out strong in the military and apparently really enjoying his time in the military, in 1969, Randy comes out of the closet, publicly identifies as gay for the first time. He tells his superiors at Edwards Air Force Base uh, and his sexuality uh, you know, is not well received. Shortly after coming out, he's given a general discharge from the Air Force for medical reasons after rising to the rank of Airman First Class. 
Kraft sought legal advice from an attorney in an attempt to challenge the grounds regarding his discharge, wanted to continue his service. The Air Force, however, refused to change the status of his discharge. Following the discharge, Kraft moved back into his parents' home, obtained work as a bartender. He'll come out to his parents as well. Uh, I'll share their reaction in a second. I do feel sorry for the poor bastard here. I mean, he was a solid airman, you know, uh, if he was, as it seems, how shitty that he wouldn't be allowed to serve or fight for his country just because he was attracted to men and not women. You could not be openly gay and in the military until 2011. Just a little over a decade ago. It's fucking crazy. Uh, pretty sure the military has not collapsed since then, by the way. Anyone who thinks that it could collapse because uh, of that needs to get some silly stereotypes out of their head about gay men primarily being weak and effeminate. Toughest guy I went to uh, school with at Gonzaga. Uh, first to uh, let his fist to do the first to let his fists uh, do the talking for him in confrontations. Came out right after graduation. Also, numerous militaries of the ancient past were won thanks in large part to the fighting of openly gay soldiers, like the Sacred Band of Thebes from Greece in the fourth century BCE an elite fighting force consisting of 150 bands of male lovers. They were victorious in many battles, most known for defeating the legendary Spartans. In the Battle of Leuctra in 371 BC, this Theban victory shattered Sparta's immense influence over the Greek peninsula, which Sparta had gained with its victory in the Peloponnesian War just a generation uh, earlier. The famed Greek philosopher and historian Plutarch would later write about this sacred band of Thebes at the dawn of the 2nd century CE. And he said... For in all the great wars there had ever been against Greeks or barbarians, the Spartans were never before beaten by a smaller company than their own, nor indeed in a set battle when their number was equal. Hence their courage was thought irresistible, and their high repute before the battle made a conquest already of enemies, who thought themselves no match for the men of Sparta even on equal terms. Plutarch added that they were the bravest and most formidable opponents. But those Thebans beat them. Uh, short tangent over now, just like to dispel mindless ignorance, uh, backed by nothing but subjective prejudice and no objective statistical, uh, data. I want to get the chance. Hail Nimrod. Uh, following his discharge, his family was supposedly shocked when Randy came out. Typical response for the times. Uh, according to author Dennis McDougal, family tried to deny it, uh, then either ignored his sexuality or tried to change him for a bit. And in, in, in a letter he wrote to a friend, Kraft described his father as having flown into a rage uh, whereas he describes his mother as being more understanding, if still somewhat disapproving. Kraft's family will ultimately accept his homosexuality tacitly, and he'll remain in close contact with his parents and sisters. Although his sisters note uh, that he began to distance himself from the family after he disclosed his sexuality to them and after their reaction to it. According to Michael Newton's Encyclopedia of Serial Killers, Randy lost a lot of weight around this time on a diet of speed and beer. So he's not doing well. Uh, While living with his parents after first working as a bartender, Randy now went through a period of trying a a variety of different jobs. Worked as a truck driver, dispatcher, uh, even as a teacher's aide. How angry was he around this time, right? What if he really wanted that career in the Air Force and then it was taken away from him for his sexuality? Then he has to go back home to live with his folks who also reject at least somewhat his sexuality. Now he's scrambling from job to job, trying to rebuild his life after being punished for something that wasn't actually wrong. Uh, Is this when a murderous rage began to build inside of him? Does he really hate himself for being gay and then he takes that out on others? Does he hate society for being prejudiced against gays? Uh, Or is it just uh, his fantasies about bondage? Uh, Do they just keep getting, you know, more extreme? Did increasingly extreme bondage fantasies merge with some of that rage? Rage at, uh, uh, you know, a variety of things I just mentioned? I don't know. Eventually, while scrambling around for a new career, Randy finds out that he had a passion for computers, which will lead him into his later career. But first, his sex crimes begin. At least the first one that we know of since this secretive son of a bitch will never uh, really talk about anything. In March of 1970, just turned 25-year-old Randy Kraft 
raped a 13-year-old boy named Joseph Alwyn Fancher. Maybe he just gave in to dark fantasies, right? Uh, Joseph, who lived in nearby Huntington Beach, had run away from home, crafted, bumped into this poor kid at the beach, promising uh, Joseph some weed, pills, and wine, some pornography, uh, also the strong possibility uh, of sex with this mystery woman he knew uh, who was just dying to fuck 13-year-olds, I guess. Randy gets Joseph to come back with him to the apartment he just moved into on Bel- in Belmont Shore, a neighborhood in Long Beach. The second he gets out of his parents' house, he's raping a kid. Not a good sign for his future. In his new apartment, Kraft drugs Joseph, likely with his cocktail of choice, alcohol and Valium. Then he binds him, beats him, repeatedly rapes him for hours. Twisted bondage fantasies. And then Randy leaves for work. And while he's gone, Fancher is able to free himself and flee the apartment. He makes it to a local bar where a patron, alarmed by young Fancher's drugged and disheveled condition, calls an ambulance. He's taken to the hospital where doctors pump his stomach. He recovers. Uh, Fancher speaks to some police officers who had been notified by someone at the hospital. And soon the police are led by Joseph back to Randy's home where they find Fancher's missing shoes, drugs, and 76 photos of Kraft having sex with men. But Joseph, embarrassed and ashamed of what had happened to him, doesn't tell the officers that he had been raped. He just tells them that Randy had given him drugs and beat him. Because Fancher said he had uh, taken the drugs voluntarily, though, um, because officers had conducted the search of Randy's apartment without a warrant, they don't make an arrest. So big fuck up here. Uh, Fancher won't uh, reveal the details of what happened to him for more than a decade. Not until Kraft is later held in jail, suspected of multiple murders. Wonder how many other men or boys Kraft assaulted from around this time that just never came forward. Uh, Dodging a legal bullet, Kraft continues working various jobs throughout 1970. Maybe also sexually assaulting God knows who else. Then in 1971, the 26-year-old gets hired as a forklift driver at a bottled water plant in Huntington Beach. He works during the day and prowls local gay bars at night, hopefully not drugging and assaulting and killing anyone, but probably was. Also enrolls uh, in education courses at Long Beach State University, taking classes at a somewhat leisurely pace. And he meets a man named Jeff Graves at school. Graves was originally from Minnesota, also enrolled in teaching courses, uh, and Graves becomes his boyfriend. But Kraft refuses to be monogamous. Graves had a studio apartment in Seal Beach, invites Randy to be his roommate. Two men move in together. Uh, They have an open relationship, frequenting bars, meeting other men for threesomes, and this will last for years. Jeff notices that Randy seems to prefer Marines. Publicly outside of their circle of local gay men, Jeff was not Randy's boyfriend. He was his roommate. Randy, despite coming out in the military and to his parents, still was not openly gay around a lot of people in his life. It was still so taboo. Uh, He was also developing a third life he hid from those uh, uh, who even knew he was gay, one of rape, torture, and murder. The man is living three separate lives now. He's becoming quite the chameleon, championship-level liar. He reportedly told one of his friends in the early 70s, there's a part of me you will never know. And one of Kraft's later roommates in the 70s recalled uh, after Kraft's arrest, Randy used to go away for a few days, come back and lock himself in his room for a couple more days. He'd go down by the Marine base. He wouldn't talk about it much, just mumble something about going down and looking for Marines. Another former roommate later referred uh, to him as a very anal retentive kind of guy, very uptight, very strict with himself. Several friends also agreed that he had a volatile temper, had a tendency to wig out. Man, he sure did wig out. Uh, Shit's about to get real gruesome in this timeline. But first, uh, time for a quick word from a very, very important new sponsor. Do black lords thwart you at every turn? Soaring in from spiritual realms and stealing your power. Poisoning your chi, tainting your chakras, dulling your crystals. Fear not, New Age warrior! Behold the soul power of Terry Hoffman's Astral Projection Online Spiritual Karate Class. Over just eight one-hour online courses, 
delivered over just four weeks for only $6,500. You can learn how to turn cocktail swizzle sticks into wizard swords and car antenna into sorcerer rods. Convert old dish rags into magic circles with Terry's sacred protection ritual knowledge. No more standing aside and letting earthquakes and viruses and fires and stuff kill thousands because no one was brave enough to stand up and kind of karate fight against the Black Lords, using their many spiritual plane bodies to infect our bodies and spirits and stuff with bad juju and things. Also, when you sign up for Terry Hoffman's Astral Projection Online Spiritual Karate Class, get 50% off all Black Lord Protection jewelry. Quartz Power Amulets, normally $20,000, are now just $30,000. Yes, that is how Terry does a discount. That is how power spirit math works, Indigo children. Think of the natural disasters you can stop with that amulet. Think of how clearly you will think, how rapidly your spirit will ascend to higher and higher planes, better frequencies, more pure vibrations, so much Akashic Records. You will practically carry humanity into the age of Aquarius all by yourself. If you just send us at least $6,500, but hopefully a lot more. Nothing stops Black Lords more than money. Sign your will over to Terry today. Take out a life insurance policy today. Throw yourself in front of a train of Black Lords tomorrow. Turn trinkets into weapons of mass destruction and, of course, learn some moves that look kind of like karate and save humanity somehow by signing up for Terry Hoffman's Astral Protection Online Spiritual Karate Class today. If you're very confused, well, maybe listen to last week's episode. I can't stop thinking about it. Or just, you know, forget about it. Just forget about it. Forget about what just happened. Just refocus on Randy Kraft, who is about to go apeshit in this timeline. But before we begin the murder section, let's actually take a quick sponsor break. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you suddenly had an extra hour show up in your day every day, what would you do with it? Work out, sleep, read a book, play Fortnite, call your mom, take judo lessons, finally watch all the episodes of Shameless. A lot of us spend a lot of our time wishing we had more time. But why? Time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The bad news is that you're not going to get that 25th hour. But what you can probably do is reprioritize where you spend some of your time. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it with your time. This year, my health is more important to me than cranking out another stand-up special as fast as possible. So I canceled a tour, sacrificed that income, and decided to spend a lot of the time I just got back working out more, resting more, relaxing more, and enjoying time with family, friends, and just myself. And I'm so glad I did. I feel better than I have in a long time. And my BetterHelp therapist, Debbie, was very helpful in getting me to make the decision to pull back. Thank you, Debbie. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash TimeSuck today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash TimeSuck. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if you've learned anything... Is that there's always a catch. So when you hear that Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, you're probably thinking, what's the catch? Well, there isn't one, really. They cut the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. It's pretty simple. Mint Mobile is here to rescue you with premium wireless plans for just 15 bucks a month and no catch. 
All plans come with unlimited talk and text, plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. And you can use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all your existing contacts over. And in addition to saving money, like over a 50% price drop from what I was paying before, the network quality, in my experience, is better than it was with my old service provider. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash timesuck. That's mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Thanks to Rocket Money, I canceled a membership to a gym I used to go to where I continued to pay a monthly membership for a couple of years after I stopped going. I didn't even recognize the charge. Rocket Money found it though, and it was canceled. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. Rocket Money will even try to negotiate lower bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is submit a picture of your bill and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. They'll deal with customer service for you. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. That's rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. Rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. One in five Americans have learned a new language on their bucket list. If that's you, make 2024 the year you finally check it off the list with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are designed by over 150 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations. Babbel has over 10 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. I've been working on my restaurant skills lately. ¿Cuál es el pescado del día? Excelente. Mi encanto pargo rojo frito. Y me gustaría un poco de huevo de naranja fresco. You may not know what I said, but my waiter in Mexico will, thanks to Babbel. Here's a special limited time deal for listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash timesuck. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash timesuck. Spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash timesuck. Rules and restrictions may apply. Thanks for sticking around, Meat Sacks. Glad those Black Lords didn't get you. Uh, now let's meet the real Randy Kraft. By the end of 1971, uh, if he wasn't a murderer already, Randy now begins to kill. On October 5th of that year, the body of 30-year-old Wayne Joseph Duquette, a bartender, found at the bottom of a ravine next to Ortega Highway. The Ortega Highway is a roughly 30-mile drive that connects Riverside and Orange Counties within the Cleveland National Forest. With no traffic, it begins about a half hour's drive from the Huntington Beach, Westminster area, where Randy grew up, and where he hunted. By the time he was found, Wayne had been missing for about two weeks. There was no obvious signs of foul play, and his cause of death could not be determined. Pathologists did report that he had acute alcohol intoxication, and his corpse was found totally nude. Duquette's clothes and personal belongings were never located. Uh, Not a lot of details for the man thought by many to be the first murder victim of Randy Kraft. Wayne worked at the Stables Bar in Sunset Beach. Kraft worked at the Broomhilda at this time, another gay bar next door. Randy was a frequent customer at Stables. 
Randy was suspected in this murder because for weeks leading up to Wayne's disappearance, he would stop by at Stables during his shift and he would say things like, man, I'd like to drug you and rape you a whole bunch and then dump your body uh, somewhere along the Ortega Highway. Everyone thought he just had a weird sense of humor, you know, for a while. But then after the, you know, body was found, well, started to look a little suspect. Uh, no, he never said that shit, of course. Uh, as far as investigators knew, for the next year or so, uh, Randy was quiet as far as murders would go. Uh, he's believed to have killed again about a bit over a year later. More details with this one, and they are disturbing. December 26, 1972, the body of 20-year-old Marine Edward Daniel Moore is found near the San Gabriel and San Diego freeways in Seal Beach. Uh, Seal Beach just north of that Belmont Shore neighborhood I mentioned earlier, just south of Long Beach. Edward last seen alive at the barracks at Camp Pendleton, December 24th. Driver found him at 1.45 a.m. December 26th. It appeared as if he had been dumped out of a moving vehicle. Moore had been strangled and bludgeoned, uh, found with clothing on, also been bitten on his genitals. And one of his socks had been removed and then jammed up his rectum. The sock detail will come up a lot in later body discoveries. Investigators will theorize that the insertion of socks inside the victim's rectums uh, was intended to prevent purging as the bodies were driven to disposal locations. Basically, he didn't want these poor bastards bleeding out all over his car after what he had done to them. Uh, Another theory investigators posited for a brief time was that Randy just happened to murder a lot of guys who chose to wear their socks the wrong way. That maybe they've been raised to stick them in their butts instead of put them on our feet. That theory would later be thrown out of uh, court for being, you know, so fucking stupid. And by thrown out of court, I mean, it was made up by me and appears nowhere in any sources. I just think like, can you imagine how fucking dumb some detective or other law enforcement member or maybe someone working with a coroner would have to be to actually think that a sock inserted into the rectum uh, of a victim in these uh, cases was, was not part of the crime, but just like a personal choice. I don't know why that thought just really makes me laugh. Just, uh, you know, like smart cop. He's like, oh God, there's a, there's a sock here stuffed inside the victim's rectum. And I'm guessing our killer put this in to keep the victim's blood from getting all over whatever vehicle he was driving. And then just some dumb cop's like, uh, I, I don't know. Uh, I mean, what if, well, hear me out. What if that's how he just wear her socks? What? What are you talking about? What if that's just how he wears socks? Holy shit, McAllister. I mean, I thought that's what I just heard, but then I just thought there's no fucking way that anyone, literally anyone on earth could be that dumb. Not even you. Dumb. How is that dumb? Gee, come on. I was thinking, I mean, I was taught by my parents to put my socks on my feet and it took me a while to figure out how to do that. Sometimes I would show up at school with socks on my hand and think, oh, dang, put a sock on my hand, supposed to put it on my feet. But now stay with me. What if this fella taught by his folks to take a sock and shove him right up his ass? McAllister, I want you to shut the fuck up. I want you to go sit in the car and count to a thousand. Don't come back out until you've counted to a thousand. But you know I can't count to high gym. I know. That's why, that's why I asked you to do it. Sorry. Uh, the Independent newspaper in Long Beach would publish an article on the one-year anniversary of the discovery of Edward Daniel Moore's body that said, the youth later identified as Edward Daniel Moore was the first of five victims believed murdered by the same person. A homicidal maniac who scattered the five bodies, some of them dismembered or sexually mutilated across a two-county area. Unfortunately, this article uh, did not spark a lot of public interest in the murders. Just didn't happen to uh, lead to a barrage of more articles. Uh, Just over a month later, on February 6, 1973, a naked John Doe was found off the shoulder of the Terminal Island in the Wilmington District of Los Angeles, south of the Pacific Coast Highway. He's estimated to be between the ages of 17 and 25. He was most likely strangled one to two days before his body was found, and he had been violently sexually assaulted. Like Moore, found with a sock stuffed into his rectum. Uh, still has not been identified. This man was around 5'8", 140 pounds, pale skin, brown hair, brown eyes, small scars on his lower right leg and silver fillings in his teeth. 
The National Center for Missing and Exploited Children posted an artist's rendering of what he may have looked like on their website many years later. And that rendering is still online today. Two months later, April 14, 1973, another John Doe found near Ellis Avenue and Gothard Street in Huntington Beach. This area used to be known as Airplane Hill. The man found there had been raped, quote, sexually mutilated, per an LA Times article, and suffocated. First time a body has been described that way. Seems like he's becoming more violent. It'll certainly get more violent going forward. Just a week later, April 22nd, yet another John Doe's body found along the Terminal Island Freeway, Wilmington, uh, just south of San Pedro. Very industrial area that features the third largest oil field in the continental U.S. He's somewhere between 5'2 and 5'10, weighs uh, somewhere between 135, 160 pounds, according to that National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. Uh, That is quite the height range, uh, listed that way because his entire body was never found. The young man's right leg was found on the Terminal Island Freeway at Anaheim Street in Wilmington. His arms were also found, uh, found on the Terminal Island Freeway, but in Long Beach. Head was found in Long Beach at 7th Street and Redondo Avenue. His left leg found behind Broomheld's bar. Yeek. Even more violent this time. He's experimenting. The body was, uh, wasn't terribly de- decomposed. They knew he had wavy brown hair and brown eyes. Small roll, uh, mole on his right neck below his right ear and a surgical scar on his lower abdomen. They estimated his age at between 17 and 25. Uh, he was missing his uh, shoes and socks. He also had ligature marks on his wrist. The cause of death ruled either blood loss or asphyxiation. His genitals had been removed. Uh, Genital mutilation ratcheted up to full-on fucking removal now. Randy went berserk on this dude. Uh, Literally cut him to pieces. Little over two months later, 20-year-old Ronnie J. Wiebe vanishes while bar hopping on July 7th, 1973. Ron was married, worked uh, for an electrical company. He was last seen at the Sportsman Bar on Los Alamitos Boulevard in Los Alamitos. Another spot in Orange County, just north of Seal Beach. His car was parked in the bar parking lot with a flat tire. He was not thought to be homosexual. Randy didn't pick him up at a gay bar. He's thought to have probably just presented himself as some kind of good Samaritan, Randy did, wanting to give this stranded motorist a ride home. This poor guy's body was found fully clothed but barefoot July 28th on the 7th Street Street on-ramp to the San Diego freeway. Someone had thrown him out of the vehicle. Uh, This is something Randy will do a lot. He seems to have thrown the majority of his victims out of whatever he was driving as opposed to taking them to some sort of dump site or burying them somewhere. Uh, Ron was badly tortured before he died. He was beaten, strangled, savagely bitten on his stomach and penis. Uh, Once again, after being roughly sodomized, a sock had been shoved into his rectum. Also, a new clue maybe emerges from this crime scene. Maybe the killer left a note for investigators that was found inside the sock, and maybe it read, Who's failing chemistry now, Mr. Manley? Or maybe that didn't happen. Maybe that was fucked up to say. Uh, December 29th, 1973, 23-year-old Vincent Vincent Cruz Mesta's body is pulled from a ravine in the San Bernardino Mountains an hour or so's drive to the east of where Randy lived at that time. Uh, Randy had been severely tortured before he died. Or sorry, Vincent, not Randy. Uh, Vincent had been severely tortured before, like something from one of the Saw movies. Worse than most of the victims in the Saw movies, actually. This is about to get as, uh, this is about as bad as it gets. Vincent was found barefoot, another sock shoved into his rectum. Face and head had been uh, strangely shaved down to the skin and his hands had been removed. Holy shit, plastic bags covered the wounds. His hands were removed in all likelihood while he was still alive. Bags kept the blood from getting all over the place. What the fuck? While he's uh, also still uh, still alive, a pencil-sized object that was never completely identified in descriptions accessed by the press uh, was forced into his penis. Jesus. Finally, after all that, he was strangled. So this guy fucking suffers. 
guessing he wasn't just uh, pushed out of his car, but instead was taken to a remote location in the woods so no one could hear his screams. Uh, Vincent's roommate saw him on December 26th. He lived just a few blocks from Randy Kraft. Had the two interacted, uh, seen each other around? Did Randy have some unpleasant interaction with this guy? Did he remind Randy of someone? What the fuck possessed him to take things so far with this victim? Maybe nothing. Maybe he just felt like it. Sadly, these psychos don't need rational reasons. Uh, Vincent, number uh, victim number seven, released again out of known victims. Number eight is found about six months later. June 2nd, 1974, the body of 20-year-old Malcolm Eugene Little is found against a mesquite tree not far from Highway 86 in Imperial County. About a two and a half hour drive from Randy's apartment. Another remote location. Uh, Little was a truck d- driver, but currently unemployed. He'd recently traveled from Alabama to California seeking work. On May 27th, his brother had dropped him off near the Garden Grove Freeway so he could hitchhike back to Alabama. He didn't make it very far. Uh, poor bastard was found naked with his legs spread. His genitals again had been completely cut off again while he was still alive. Randy clearly got off on watching these guys suffer tremendously. Uh, Little also had a tree branch from the mesquite tree he was found underneath uh, crudely shoved into his ass. That also hadn't killed him. He had died from strangulation. Uh, maybe there was another clue found at this crime scene, possibly carved in that tree branch with the initials L.A., L.A. for Los Angeles or L.A. for former high school chemistry teacher Lee Manley. Maybe near the initials was another letter, an A plus uh, with a plus sign next to it. L.A. dot 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 A plus. Maybe I'm going to keep this dumb gag going for a while to try and lighten up the incredible amount of fucking darkness in this episode a little bit. Uh, Other than torturing and murdering, what else was he up to around this time? Well, Randy was a good uncle, several nieces and nephews. Again, compartmentalization. They can be great in parts of their lives and worse than others. Uh, Taking classes still at Long Beach uh, State University. First studying education classes, then moving more into computers, moving towards a nice career based on what uh, he'll learn in these uh, computer classes. One of his sisters, Kay, was an elementary school teacher, and he briefly thought about following her into a career in education before he focused on computers. He worked as a teacher's aide one semester, working in a third grade classroom while he's doing all this horrific shit. So that's fun. Helping kids with the beginnings of advanced multiplication fractions, interpreting basic graphs, working on the cursive, advancing their reading, sounding out complex words, maybe like uh, strangulation. Here, Timmy, let's uh, let's break down uh, the word into three parts. Work out every sound, okay? Strang. You say strang, stra, ang, strang, gu, 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 gulation, strang, gu, lay, shun, strangulation. The cause of death was strangulation, probably, but maybe the victim died from blood loss. You know what a fancy word for blood loss is, Timmy? Exanguation. Ex, sang, gui. Nation, exsanguination, exsanguination. And you know <laughs> what you can uh, do to help keep your car clean when someone is dying from, say, anal exsanguination? Uh, that's right, Timmy, a sock. You can take a sock. You've been paying attention to Mr. Kraft. I hope he wasn't saying any of those things. Uh, Randy also still lived with his boyfriend, uh, Jeff Graves, still in that open relationship. Some investigators will later believe that Graves assisted Kraft in several murders, uh, including all the murders we've covered so far. And uh, that we'll cover uh, through 1976 when they'll break up and no longer live together. Some of the crime scenes featured clues that pointed to multiple assailants, such as what appeared to be two sets of footprints leading away from some of the bodies. Uh, Graves, of course, will later maintain he had nothing to do with any of this. When asked how he didn't know what Randy was up to, he stated that while they lived together, they also lived very separate lives. They sometimes dated other people. Jeff was often uh, working and would go to school when he was, uh, uh, you know, wasn't uh, working. So he was busy. Also had a tumultuous, tumultuous relationship breaking up and then getting back together over and over between 1971 and 1976. 
All right, let's return to our murdery timeline now, jumping in again at the summer of 1974. June 22nd that year, Roger Dickerson, age 18 and also a Marine, found off a dead-end street in Laguna Beach. Laguna Beach is also uh, in Orange County, a few beach towns south of Huntington Beach. Fellow Marine saw Roger last uh, alive on June 20th at a bar in San Clemente, a few miles down the coast from Laguna Beach. Told his friends he'd gotten a ride to LA for the weekend. Unfortunately, he didn't tell them who the driver was. Roger's killer, Randy Kraft, sodomized and strangled him to death after drugging him likely with an alcohol and Valium cocktail. Before killing Roger, Randy brutally bit his penis, uh, also bit one of his nipples clean off. Whew. Uh, just a little over uh, a month after Roger's body is found, on August 3rd, oil field workers then find the body of 25-year-old Thomas Paxton Lee on a pier in an oil field in Long Beach. He'd been strangled and, of course, beaten and raped before he died. Thomas was a waiter, uh, is referred to in one source as a sometime gay hustler, i.e. male sex worker, last seen alive at a bar in Wilmington, August 2nd. Just nine days later, August 12th, from the previous uh, body discovery, uh, the dead body of 23-year-old Gary Wayne Cordova is found fully clothed and barefoot down an embankment near Cabot Road and also Parkway in Laguna Hills, just a bit northeast of Laguna Beach. His cause of death, an overdose of alcohol and Valium. Because Gary was missing the signature of the sock, initially not connected to the other victims. He was not mutilated or obviously sexually assaulted like the other victims. It seems as if Randy lost interest in tearing you apart or raping you if you died too quickly. Got his cocktail mix wrong with this guy. Maybe uh, maybe he was especially attracted specifically to the infliction of pain. He wanted to know you were scared. He wanted to see terror in your eyes, hear you scream. Shortly before he disappeared, Gary had told his friends he was moving out of his home in Pasadena and hitchhiking to Oceanside. Almost four months later, November 29th, 1974, another body found, another victim of the man who will become known as the scorecard killer. The remains of 19-year-old James Dale Reeves found a quarter mile from Jeffrey Road near the intersection with Barranca, uh, Barranca Road in Irving, Irvine, Jesus, again in Orange County. Uh, James was naked except for a bloody t-shirt. He'd taken the family car out for a drive on Thanksgiving Day, went to a newly formed church in Costa Mesa for the gay community, uh, had dinner with some friends there, then never came back home. He was found with his legs spread and a four-foot-long, three-inch-wide stick violently shoved deep into his rectum. Jesus Christ. James Carr was found in the parking lot of Ripple's Bar in Long Beach where Kraft was uh, a frequent customer. Now a task force is unofficially formed behind the scenes. Nothing's made public. But this collection of several detectives knows that, you know, many of these killings are very likely related. But who is doing it, they don't have a clue. Without DNA evidence and other forensic tools law enforcement has today, the police have little at their disposal to catch whoever's committing these, you know, horrific murders. And whoever's doing it is, uh, you know, not just one person. Uh, police also at this time realize that it, you know, probably is almost certainly multiple people. Another so-called freeway killer, Patrick Carney, who'd been killed in the area since 1962, wouldn't be caught for two more years, may have killed 43 boys and young men. He'd typically shoot his victims in the head before sexually abusing their corpses. Other never-identified sexually violent killers, many men who likely never became serial killers, were also claiming the lives of men and boys in the area. And all these victims really don't have all that much in common beyond being young and male. Some of them were party animals, some were loners, some were people passing through the area, many were Marines, some were married and straight, some were homosexuals, others were little kids still in junior high. Some of them had been shot, some of them had been strangled, some of them had been beaten to death. Many had been sodomized either before, you know, they died or afterwards, but then there were those who weren't. Some had been drugged, some hadn't been drugged, some were mutilated, some weren't, some mutilated while alive, some after they were dead, some had been hitchhiking, some hadn't. 
Some of their bodies have been carefully displayed out in the woods. Others carelessly tossed out of a moving vehicle onto the road. Uh, others uh, still were buried. You know, some bodies, Patrick Carney's victims, have been cut up and put in trash bags, tossed into remote canyons, landfills, tossed way out in the desert, sometimes besides the highway. Most of the bodies, though, were intact. You know, so shit was all over the place. Uh, did the Orange County Sheriff's Office ever establish a tip line for people to call in and help law enforcement before they, uh, uh, like they had done uh, before the for the third freeway killer, excuse me, William Bonin, a.k.a. Billy Gutterballs, like they will do in uh, spring and early summer of 1980? Uh, no, they wouldn't do that until 1980. Why not? Don't have that answer. Uh, maybe they just, they just figured like there was just, there were things were too scattered and it wouldn't help. It'd be too much information. I don't know. Could homophobic prejudice have played a part? Since the victims were mainly grown men who were either homosexual or at least possibly homosexual who had been uh, sodomized, did that make the murders less of a priority than it would have if the victims would have been, uh, say, the straight daughters of uh, people in well-to-do traditional families? I don't know. Possibly. I have to think based on the culture at that time, it's you know definitely a possibility. Uh, maybe the kills of Bonin's plus the kills of Kraft all shortly following so many of Carney's kills did that collectively finally push law enforcement to form a tip line in 1980? Or... And I think we have our answer here. Did it take a combination of media coverage and public outcry over the murders for a tip line to be created? That seems to have been what happened. Uh, March 24th, 1980, the Orange County Register released their first story of a serial murderer they dubbed the Freeway Killer. At this time, both Kraft and Bonin still active in the same area. And it had been less than three years since cops caught Patrick Carney. Uh, more press followed this initial front page, you know, news, which soon led to a lot of public pressure to find whoever was continuing to rape and kill Southern California's men and boys with so many of them disappearing specifically from Orange County. But that's over five years away from where we are in our timeline now. In the mid 70s, Kraft would be able to keep killing with very little interest from local law enforcement uh, to find and stop him. People had no idea, you know, who was doing this. So let's jump to 1975, January 4th. 17-year-old John Larris, high school student, is found in the water off of Bolsa Chica State Beach in Huntington Beach. He had disappeared on his way to a skating rink in Long Beach the day before. He was going to use the new roller skates he had just got for Christmas. John got on a bus near Ripple's Bar. And then Randy, uh, why did he have to shove so much shit so far up people's asses, took a wooden surveyor's stake and pushed it deep into this poor kid's rectum. Uh, he'd been tied up and strangled, had alcohol in his system. Valium not mentioned, but I bet it was in his system as well. This is one of the murders many think Randy's boyfriend, Jeff Graves, helped him commit. There were two sets of footprints in the sand showing where he was carried from the parking lot to the water. Almost two weeks later, January 17th, another victim's remains are discovered. Construction workers find 24-year-old Craig Victor Jonite's body near the Golden Sales Hotel, Golden Sales Hotel Bar on the PCH in Long Beach. Uh, Craig had been strangled with a string. He was found barefoot and strangely wearing two pairs of pants. Didn't appear that he had been sexually assaulted. Nothing found in his rectum. Uh, A week later, January 24th, 1975, detectors from different jurisdictions meet in Santa Ana to officially, to officially, excuse me, organize a task force now. Officers from Orange County, Imperial County, and San Bernardino counties meet with officers from LA, Long Beach, Seal Beach, Irvine, and Huntington Beach. An FBI profiler from Quantico, a special investigator from the state attorney general's office and forensic psychologist also joined the meeting. Dr. E. Mansell Patterson from UC Irvine created a profile of the killer and described him as a man, quote, who likely felt deeply wronged, if not outright emasculated, by a former high school chemistry teacher. 
Regarding the victims who had been sexually mutilated, especially the biting of the genitals, Dr. Patterson felt this was the killer's way of taking a uh, piece out of men who reminded him of his former teacher, just like that teacher had taken a piece out of his academic resume and robbed him of being valedictorian. Did Dr. Patterson really give that assessment? Uh, sure, maybe. Uh, or maybe I wrote it as a joke. You know, uh, What I know Dr. Patterson wrote regarding a profile of the killer is that the killer was a man who desires to be masculine but does not feel masculine gnawing the nipples and genitals of his prey to symbolically make the victim a female. Huh. Uh, okay. Uh, some investigators on the task force believed that the murders were the work of more than one individual and that one or more of them had a military background. Why? Two victims had paper tissue residue found in their nostrils, a procedure known to be used in the military to prevent bodies from purging after death. And of course, the socks uh, shoved in many of the victims' rectums, you know, seemed to go along with this purging uh knowledge uh despite being correct about the sock part at this stage investigators still have no solid suspects back now to Kraft's long list of victims on the evening of march 29th 1975 Kraft lured two teens 19 year old keith crotwell and 15 year old kent may from a long beach parking lot into his ford mustang both boys given beer and valium as Kraft drove in an apparently random aimless manner uh, around belmont shore and seal beach uh may later recalled feeling catatonic as a result of the valium and alcohol He'd ingested before he passed out. In the parking lot where Crotwell and May had been last seen, two friends of the youth observed a distinctive black and white Mustang pull in and stop before the driver leaned across, opened the passenger door, and pushed the unconscious but miraculously otherwise unharmed May out onto the pavement. And then the driver sped away. Uh, as he did so, the friends noted Crotwell slumped against the unknown driver's shoulder. Then a little over five weeks later, May 8th, Crotwell's skull is found on a jetty close to the Long Beach Marina. The remainder of his body won't be found for another six months. After hearing the news, uh, the two friends of Crotwell and May, who suspected that the murder was a patron of a Belmont Shore gay bar, searched their neighborhood for that distinctive Mustang. And they fucking found it. They found the car less than a mile from their home, wrote down the license plate number, gave the info to the police, and then the police traced the registration and linked the vehicle to Randy. Don't ever take him up on an offer to help you put on socks, Kraft. Long Beach police questioned Kraft about Crotwell's abduction and murder on May 19th, 1975. Initially, he, did not, he denied having uh, ever met either Crotwell or May. And the police, obviously skeptical of, uh, skeptical of Kraft's denial based on multiple witnesses, uh, you know, putting the, uh, uh, seeing him in the car with Crotwell, uh, one of whom was also in the car, summoned him to the police station for further questioning. Their Kraft, after having more time to think, Admitted that on or around March 29th, you know, he had, yes, encountered two youths in the, tw- in the Long Beach parking lot in question, and he had persuaded them to drink alcohol and consume Valium with him as he drove. So he looks a wee bit guilty here. He tells police that he returned May to the parking lot, you know, carefully pushing him unconscious uh, out onto the pavement. And then he said he just, you know, happened to keep driving with the also unconscious Crotwell to a side road close to the El Toro off-ramp where the I-5 and I-405 merge where his car subsequently became embedded upon the embankment. And Crotwall, uh, totally unconscious, uh, or I'm sorry, totally conscious at this point and doing A-OK, according to him. Kraft then claimed to have walked alone to a gas station to call a tow truck while Crotwell uh, remains in the car. And then when he gets back, Kraft claims Crotwell, uh, so completely A-OK when he last saw him, gosh dang, has now totally disappeared. Kraft's roommate, on-again, off-again boyfriend Jeff Graves, will confirm that Kraft had phoned him on the date of Crotwell's disappearance, claiming that his vehicle was stuck on the embankment. Uh, Graves, you know, despite him kind of confirming at least one detail of Kraft's story, detectives now think that he has killed Crotwell. The following week, detectives attempt to file homicide charges against Kraft, 
However, the LA District uh, Attorney's Office declines, citing the coroner's conclusion from his autopsy of the remains thus far found, consisting only of his skull at this point, that the youth died of accidental drowning. How the fuck did he get that from a mutilated head? If he's only if he's only looking at the skull, how does he determine drowning? Just fuck another dumb guy in this tour. I don't know. Uh, where's a where's a head found again? In a water? Probably probably drowning. From what I remember of medical school, uh, heads cannot breathe in water. So probably drown. Someone probably drop a head in water on an accident. Uh, let me type over this report real quick and let's get lunch. I love a sandwich. Uh, if only the remains of Crotwell were discovered like most of the remains of Kraft's victims, then that fucker would have been nailed. But unfortunately, not the case here. Why wasn't Kraft arrested uh, when the rest of Crotwell's body is later found, uh, um, you know, in, in, in October? Because those remains uh, won't be identified as being Crotwell's bones until 1991. So he catches uh, a, a couple of lucky breaks. The following month, in June of 1975, Kraft is arrested in a bathroom at Cherry Park for lewd conduct with another man. His second arrest for this. This time, the charge is not dropped. Spends five days in jail, pays $125 fine. At the time, Kraft was employed as a part-time computer operator for a charter flight company at Long Beach Airport. Also, uh, frequently supposedly suffering from insomnia, migraines, and stomach pain. Maybe he was. Leading three lives, worrying about getting sent to prison for multiple murders, probably was pretty fucking stressful. Uh, He was laid off shortly after his arrest. Doesn't kill again for a year and a half, investigators think. Possibly stayed away from murder due to nearly getting arrested for Crotwell's Crotwell's murder. Uh, December 31st, 1975, the scorecard killer strikes again. 22-year-old Mark Hall now goes missing from a party in San Juan Capistrano. He'd been out celebrating New Year's Eve with two of his friends from work. They worked for the utility Emerson Electric Company in Santa Ana. Uh, The poor young dude had recently moved to Southern California from Pocatello, Idaho, hoping to become a rock star. He'd been a drummer in a local band there called Heavenly Blue. He was living it uh, up in SoCal now, trying to form a new band, smoking a lot of weed, going to a lot of parties, dating a lot of girls. At some point, partying out New Year's Eve, out bar hopping and hammered fucking drunk. His buddies lose track of him. And then Randy Kraft sadly finds him. January 3rd, 1976, his body is found on the west side of Bedford Peak at the east end of Santiago Canyon. Prosecutors and investigators will describe this killing as the uh, most brutal one he ever committed. It is something, again, straight out of a Saw movie or some other torture porn flick. It's fucking horrific. Mark is found naked and tied up to a, a little tree. He's been repeatedly sodomized and brutally tortured. His legs have been cut in multiple places, slashed over and over with a knife. His eyes, face, chest, and genitals had all been badly burned with a cigarette lighter. His eyes had been, quote, destroyed by that lighter. Not just fucking burnt, destroyed. That is a detail uh, I can't think too intensely about without feeling nauseous. And that's not all that was done with, uh, to him. A cocktail swizzle stick had been jammed into his dick so fucking hard it ended up in his bladder. And then after all this, Randy cut off his dick with a knife stuffed it in his rectum along with dirt and leaves. What the fuck? Forensic experts are able to determine that Hall was alive for most of this. He died from either alcohol poisoning or from literally choking on dirt. His blood alcohol level was determined to be seven times the legal limit when he died, so enough for a fatal overdose. Uh, also had leaves and you know dirt in his throat, which, uh, you know as I said, may have killed him. Fingerprints found on broken glass near his body later identified as belonging to Randy Kraft. Uh, And yes, that broken glass also had been used to torture Mark. Randy went full fucking Satan on this poor bastard. This murder happened right after Kraft and his boyfriend, Jeff Graves, split up for good. So coincidence? Probably not. 
Kraft took out some serious sexual anger on, on this guy. Uh, other than this breakup, the scorecard killer's life overall going pretty good. 1975. Uh, he has a great job. He now works uh, running payroll on the computers uh, for Aztec Aircraft. He'd been given a key to the office to be able to work after hours. His bosses love him. He's the first to show up. He's the last to leave. Also chooses to keep his sexuality a secret from his coworkers. Living those three lives, you know, hardworking, diligent. Who knows what he does in his free time, Randy? Uh, gay bar party guy. Let's fucking go, Randy. And then uh, lone wolf serial killer guy. At least now that Jeff Graves is gone. And maybe Jeff never helped him or knew about the killing. So there's that possibility. Uh, early 1976, party guy Randy Kraft settles down, but not really. Moves into an apartment in Laguna Hills with 19-year-old Jeff Selig. Another man he'll have an on-again, off-again, turbulent, romantic relationship with for years. It is later not thought that this Jeff will help him commit any murders. The two had met at a party months earlier, right around the time Randy broke up with Jeff number one. Angel of Darkness author Dennis McDougal later describes uh, this Jeff as a chubby apprentice baker from a well-to-do Jewish family from Long Beach. Jeff lies about his age, tells Randy he's 26. Good thing, because had he said he was only 19, no way Randy would have dated him. Not with the strong moral compass he had. Uh Uh-uh. He would never want to feel like he was taking advantage of someone. Uh, Randy was now 30. Uh, Randy maybe waits almost a whole year to start drugging, raping, torturing, and killing again. Maybe he and Jeff are enjoying some kind of honeymoon phase for a while. Maybe Jeff was uh, handling his BDSM fanties for a while, but then maybe Randy amped it up too far. Maybe uh, maybe Jeff uh, told Randy that he didn't want to stick a rock uh, or a sock, excuse me, shoved up his ass, you know, or have his dick bit. Or perhaps Randy started killing again when he got shot down for promotion at work because his employers found out he once flunked his chemistry class in high school. Fucking Lee Manley. This is his fault. Uh by December 12th, 1976, Randy's honeymoon with his uh, new new Jeff is over. 19-year-old Paul Fuchs goes missing from Ripple's Bar in Long Beach. Randy really loved to hunt there. Uh, he's never seen again. Uh, Paul's body has never been found. Strongly assumed to be another scorecard victim since Randy was there the night he disappeared. April 16th, 1978, the body of 19-year-old Marine Scott, or Marine Scott Michael Hughes is found beside the on-ramp to the 91 freeway in Orange County. Last seen uh, alive on April 14th. He was found fully dressed, but missing his shoelaces. His genitals had been mutilated. His left testicle, just the left, had been removed. He had value in his system, and he was thought to have died of strangulation after the torture. Only left testicle is a weird detail to me. Uh, did Randy plan these mutilations out in advance? Like, did that sick fuck jerk off for days or weeks just thinking about, you know, cutting off some poor bastard's left ball? Just wanted to see, like, uh, you know, how it would feel just to remove one. Or did he just wing it? You know, fall into some kind of sexually motivated bloodlust trance when these murders began. Man, what a what a hornet's nest for a mind this guy had. Uh, June 10th, 1978, 23-year-old Roland Gerald Young is released from the Orange County Jail after being arrested for public intoxication. Uh, his freedom, very short-lived. He leaves jail at 8.19 p.m. Just over seven hours later at 3.30 a.m., June 11th, his body is found on Irvine Center Drive near the San Diego Freeway. Both alcohol and volume in his system, his wrists have been tied up. And his scrotum and part of his penis have been cut off before he died, of course. Motherfucker. Scrotum, not testicles. Just took, just took off his scrotum. Uh, this dude is doing just fucked up science experiments on these people. This dude would make Nazi mad scientist Dr. Uh, Mengele gag. Go, you know, just goddamn Randy. Too far. Shiza. Uh, uh, Roland hadn't been strangled. Randy decided to get more brutal. See uh, how using a knife felt. Stab Roland four times in the chest. 
Just a week later, June 18th, 23-year-old Marine Richard Allen Keith now hitchhiked from Camp Pendleton to Carson to visit his girlfriend. First of, I think, a few Richards in this, uh, in this uh, so many Richards, always. Uh, they get into a fight and he left her place at 11 p.m. His body was found hours later, June 19th, beside Moulton Parkway in Laguna Hills. He'd been strangled, had a uh, diazepam in his system. Diazepam is the, is the drug name for the brand name Valium, Randy's go-to. Less than a month later, Randy strikes again. July 8th, the body of a 23, of 23-year-old Keith Klingbeal is found sprawled across the lane of I-5 in Mission Viejo. Mission Viejo, also in Orange County, just east of Laguna Hills. Keith's still alive when he's found, but barely. But he dies before paramedics get there. Paramedics made it to the scene of his murder at 3.30 a.m., uh, unable to revive him. Uh, Keith was last seen July 7th, hitchhiking from Everett, Washington, all the way down to San Diego. Almost made it. He'd taken or been given a fatal overdose of liquor and Tylenol. Randy does switch up the drug this time. Maybe he was out of volume. Didn't feel like waiting for more. Uh, ligature marks were found on his ankles. He'd been burned by a cigarette lighter on his left nipple. Cause of death ruled as a combination of drug poisoning and strangulation. Almost three months later, September 30th, 1978, the body of 20-year-old Richard Crosby found laying on Highway 83 in San Bernardino County. Is that Richard? Is that a second dick in the victim list now? Was the other Richard uh, also Crosby? What? No, it wasn't, right? I have to go look back in my notes. Yeah, it was Richard Keith on June 18th. And now here we are, uh, not far removed from that. Um, June 18th until September 30th. Another Dick, Richard Crosby. God, it feels like at least one dude named Dick shows up in 90% of these episodes. It's fucking uncanny. I know it's a common name, or you, but you know, I know it's a common name, yeah. But I, but I go months in real life without meeting uh, a Richard. But I can't throw a rock in the suck first without hitting the dick. Half the time, the rock skips off one dick and then hits another dick. Uh, this dick was known to be a habitual hitchhiker. Before King of the Pink Sock, Randy Kraft found him. He had gone uh, to a movie in Torrance. Uh, Richard lived with his aunt at this time. She last spoke to him two days before his body was found. He called to let her know he was coming home from the movies. This poor bastard had been raped and sexually tortured. Left nipple had been burned clean off with a car cigarette lighter. Cause of death was suffocation. And then Randy just keeps fucking killing over and over year after year. Month and a half later, November 18th, 1978, 21 year old truck driver, Michael Joseph Inderbeaton or Biden. Uh, found dead at the interchange of the San Diego and San Gabriel freeways. His genitals had been, this is not going to shock you, removed. He had been sodomized with. This is also not going to shock you, a large foreign object. But this might shock you. Uh, Rumor has it that the unnamed large foreign object was a 1962 Westminster High School chemistry book that once belonged to Lee Manley. Written aside on every page were the words, I am the real valedictorian. This book had been wrapped in a gym sock. And I know that's fucked up, but this story is just so relentlessly dark. So much mutilation, Randy, uh, over and over again, my God. Uh, no one knows what the object was. Also, Michael's eyelids had been badly burned with a cigarette lighter. This guy's the devil. He had Valium in his system. Uh, once again, cause of death, suffocation. June 19th, 1979, Randy almost caught so close. Uh, multiple witnesses see someone push the dead body of 20-year-old Marine Donald Harold Krizzle out of a slowly moving vehicle uh, onto the going heading onto the Irvine Center Drive on-ramp to the 405 freeway. Sadly, they couldn't agree if this uh, was a car or a van. Then to add more confusion, an additional witness first said he had been dumped from a Ford Bronco, but then later changed her mind and said she saw the body dumped from the uh, sidecar of a motorcycle. 
then later changed her story again, uh, said he'd sure been dumped out of either a helicopter, hovercraft, or spaceship. And that witness was, of course, Dana Dipshit Crappa from the dating game Killer Suck. Worst eyewitness in the history of any and all trials. No, of course, JK with her. But the other witnesses really couldn't agree if they saw a car or a van. Not sure how you mix up a Mustang with a fucking van, which is what Randy was still driving, that Mustang at this point. Damn it. Uh, Donald's body was warm when the police arrived. He had ligature marks on his neck and wrist, as well as burn marks on his left nipple. Again with the left nipple, always the left. Randy fucking hated left nipples. Uh, hated them about as much as the Ripper crew. Uh, those devils loved boobs or hated boobs, I guess. Uh, his cause of death was an overdose of alcohol and painkillers. Sounds like Randy probably wanted to torture him further, but it gave him too strong of a cocktail for him to live long enough to see uh, much more pain. What else is Randy up to? Well, still working with computers. No longer at Aztec Aircraft. Now he's got a better gig. By July of 1979, Randy Stephen Kraft, now 34, is working as a freelance data processing consultant, making enough dough to be able to afford a house in Long Beach at 824 Roswell Avenue. Cute little three-bedroom, two-bath home. Only around 1,300 square feet, but stylish. Kind of a Mediterranean look. Last sold in 2021 for just under a million. Randy's living there with his boyfriend, Jeff Selig, right? The guy's been dating since 1976, who's now 22. When Randy isn't busy snuffing out innocent lives, these two are partying it up, doing some traveling. August 1978, they took a fun trip down to Mexico, making uh, uh, love down on the beach, maybe. Uh, maybe getting to a little tiff when Randy, uh, you know, bites Jeff's left nipple alarmingly hard. Uh, May of 1979, they took a romantic trip to Lake Tahoe. Other than maybe an argument about Randy sharing a fantasy hymn, jerking off to the thought of skinning Jeff's nutsack, they'd probably have a great time. Uh, they'd also, somewhere in between these uh, two trips, spent time on the East Coast, driving from New York all the way down to Key West. Uh, friends later recalled that uh, when they were up, they were always up at odd hours. Selig was running a bakery now, which meant he had to be up sometimes uh, at 2, 3 in the morning uh, to get everything ready to open. Also worked on weekends. Randy, quite fond of a late night drive in his Mustang around this time. At least that's what he would tell people. He left out the part about pick, picking up hitchhikers or men from bars and shoving sticks and socks up their asses and burning their nipples off and biting their dicks after drugging them and raping them and throwing their bodies out of the car once they were dead. He probably just kept forgetting to bring that stuff up. Uh, Jeff's job, working on weekends and having to be to bed early and uh, you know be off to work before sunrise, left Randy with a lot of time to hunt and kill with no one wondering where he was. Another Orange County John Doe is found. Dismembered August 29th, 1979 at a Union 76 station in Long Beach. This time, the body uh, had been cut off and put in two plastic bags and a cardboard box. The work of one of the other freeway killers, Patrick Carney, who liked to put his victims in trash bags, perhaps? No, because he'd already been arrested in July of 1977. Uh, maybe the work of the third freeway killer, William Bond and Billy Gutterballs. That would be impossible. Billy started killing in May of 1979 and would do a lot of the same shit, such as biting genitals and emasculating uh, some of his victims. But this victim was found with a signature sock in the rectum. Neither Bonin nor Carney uh, were known to ever do that. Just crap. So I guess it's not impossible for Bonin to have done it, but highly unlikely. Uh, this John Doe died a few years, or excuse me, a few years, a few days before he was found. His arms had been cut off at the shoulders, legs severed at the hip joints, head severed. Uh, his head, left leg, torso were found, not the rest of his body. He was estimated to be anywhere between 17 and 30 years old, somewhere between 5'10 and 6'3, 140 to 200 pounds. Clear the remains, not in great condition to have so much variance. Uh, he had brown hair, brown eyes, scar on his left knee, a chipped front tooth. Why the fuck did Randy do all this to this guy? Who knows? He went crazy again. His brutality knew no bounds. Nothing, nothing was off limits with this guy when it came to sexual sadism. 
Another victim believed to be one of the craft's kills goes missing two weeks later. September 14th, 1979, 19-year-old Gregory W. Jolly found in a garage bag, garage, garbage bag in the Lake Arrowhead, Big Bear area, head and legs missing. They were later found at San Bernardino, at a San Bernardino service station, September 15th. Gregory had been sexually mutilated in ways consistent with what Kraft did to other victims. It's believed, based on details from the uh, scorecard, investigators will later find that Randy struck again a little over two months later, November 27th, 1979. On that day, real young this time, uh, 15-year-old Jeffrey Brian Sayre goes missing from Santa Ana. Last seen heading home from a girlfriend's house in Westminster. He was going to ride the bus, but the buses weren't operating anymore that night. So I'm sure he was probably hitchhiking. Uh, His body has never been found. For the next six months, Randy possibly goes quiet on the murder front. Maybe he and Jeff are in a particularly particularly, uh, good space. Maybe Jeff has learned how to uh, handle having sticks and socks uh, shoved up his ass. Maybe he lets Randall uh, burn his nips from time to time, or at least a left one, the, uh, the naughty nip. Or maybe some of his victims from this time just never turn up. And were never reported missing due to lost contact with family members, you know, drifters from other parts of the country, uh, sex workers who didn't keep close contact with family members or friends. By the summer of 1980, though, Randy is definitely back at it. You can't keep a good man down and you also can't keep a young and free piece of shit named Randy Kraft, who's not even in the ballpark of being a good man from raping and killing. Uh, Work uh, going better than ever for Randall from June of 1980 to January of 1983, he worked as a consultant for Lear Sigler Industries, an aerospace firm based in Santa Monica, one of the many clients he has now. Between 1980 and 1981, he made about $50,000 working for just this one client, equivalent to about one hundred and eighty dollars today. And this company did all sorts of shit. They're no longer around today. They were uh, bought out, absorbed years ago. Uh, they used to make everything from car seats and brakes to weapon control systems for military fighter jets. Also tried introducing the first cable TV system and subscription TV system to the U.S. back in 1960. Uh, By 1970, LSI had 56 divisions in 17 countries operating in six major business areas. Commercial products, fabricated products, avionics, power equipment systems and services, and real estate. And Randy, working uh, uh, for this, you know, Lear Sigler Industries, uh, traveled to their offices in Oregon and Michigan fairly often in the early 80s. And wouldn't you know it, Damn near every time he traveled for work, wherever he went, another young man or two ended up raped, tortured, and dead. But he never let his fun time get in the way of work. His new employers described him as a self-starter, an excellent problem solver, and an exceptional employee. So he continues to uh, fool people. And he continues to live a third life at work. No one in his consulting jobs. Uh, no, he's gay. One female coworker later told sheriff's investigators, Randy was the kind of man I wanted as a father for my children. Can't find any former coworkers who spoke ill of him, actually. He hid the monster well. Hid it from neighbors as well. Uh, Penny Deweese, one of Randy's neighbors in the 80s, told the LA Times after his arrest, Randy always had a friendly word for me. He'd help me with my packages. She remembered him working uh, often in the garden, walking his dog, Max. So that's fun. You just never fucking know where these monsters might be hiding. They do not always set off your radar. Uh, On July 17th, 1980, 17-year-old Michael Sean O'Fallon is found dead along I-5 in Salem, Oregon. Randy had been in Salem at the time uh, as well. So weird. Uh, Michael, originally from Colorado, wanted to travel. He'd hitchhiked all the way back from British Columbia before he was murdered. He had been tied up with his own shoelaces. A cord had been uh, uh, also tied real tight around his scrotum. And he had toxic levels of alcohol and Valium in his system. But that's not what killed him. He was strangled. John Doe is found the next day July 18th, 1980, near I-5 in Woodburn, Oregon, less than 20 miles away from this other body. 
Uh, he was strangled just a few hours before he was found be, be, uh, because he had been seen hitchhiking a bit earlier that day. He was 35 to 45 years old, white, 5'6", 160 pounds, brown but balding hair, blue eyes, and a mustache. His blood contained alcohol and, of course, Valium. September 3rd, 1980, Randy's back home down in Orange County. And uh, more men start dying there again. Some kids playing near El Toro Marine Air Base uh, that day found the remains of 19-year-old Marine Robert Wyatt Loggins wrapped in a trash bag. Cord found near his neck. Bloody sock found near, not in his rectum. Last seen alive in Huntington Beach, August 22nd. And when his body was found, he'd been dead for a few days. He'd recently been uh, confined to the barracks for excessive drinking. On his first night of release, he went out, drank again, had toxic levels of alcohol and antihistamines in his blood. Police didn't connect his death to craft until 1983. Uh, decomposition initially masked some of the crime details. But then some evidence recovered from Kraft's home revealed the truth. Investigators will later find 47 photos of young men in Kraft's home after his final arrest. Many of the pics of men in sexually compromising positions. It was impossible to tell if they were alive or dead in many of the photos. Uh, a few of the photos were pictures of Robert Wyatt Loggins. In early April 1981, 17-year-old Michael Dwayne Cluck is hitchhiking from Seattle to California. On April 10th, he's found dead along I-5 near the main gate of the short mountain dump near Goshen, Oregon, or Goshen, perhaps Goshen just south of Eugene, Oregon. Randy had been in that area for week, for uh, work. Michael had been sodomized, kicked, badly beaten. He'd been deeply scratched by fingernails on his thighs and groin area. Like a fucking wild animal attacked him. And I guess one had. Uh, his cause of death, 31 blows to the head. 31. On the day his body was found, Kraft visited a hospital in Oregon for a foot injury. Said he got the uh, bruises accidentally while walking barefoot in a hotel room. Uh, you know, definitely didn't get him from uh, kicking the shit out of a teenage boy. August, uh, four months later, August 20th, 1981, the body of another 17-year-old, Christopher Williams, is found. Next to a road in the San Bernardino Mountains, uh, Randy back in SoCal. He had sedatives in his system, two different kinds. Someone had stuffed paper into his nostrils. Christopher died of pneumonia due to aspiration. Uh, for the next year, Randy may have gone on the straight and narrow. One uh, or, or uh, more victims just never have been found and uh, never been uh, attributed to him. June of 1982, Kraft and his partner, Jeff Selig, start going to couples therapy together. Holy shit. The thought of this dude in relationship therapy is so absurd. Um, Randy, uh, when Jeff says that he doesn't feel like you're always being honest with him, how does that make you feel? It makes me feel like drugging Jeff and tying him up so he'll shut the fuck up. It makes me feel like shoving a pencil in his dick and then burning out his fucking eyeballs with a cigarette lighter. It makes me feel like jamming a tree branch in his ass, then cramming a sock up there afterwards so it doesn't bleed out all over my nice Mustang before I push his dead body onto the freeway. That's good, Randy. That's good. Loving the honesty. And, and, and how did uh, what Randy just said make you feel, Jeff? Um, uh, scared. Uh, really, really scared. Good. Good. Now we're getting somewhere. Uh, in reality, the therapist later described Jeff as uh, defensive and anxious with an insatiable sex drive. And, and <laughs> this is interesting. Jeff is described that way. Um, and Randy resented how uh, Jeff dominated their relationship, which I find fascinating. Uh, didn't expect to hear that. Jeff dominates Randy. Then Randy goes on to dominate the fuck out of, you know, random poor bastards who make the mistake of taking a drink or whatever he offers them. Uh, Jeff and Randy plan a trip to Europe to rekindle their romance, 1982, but they uh, can't find the time to do so. Their therapy is often interrupted also by Kraft's need to travel for work. Uh, he's too busy working and killing. 
to put uh, the proper time into the relationship. The following month, July 29th, 1982, residents of Echo Park, a neighborhood in East Central LA, north of Orange County, complained about foul odors coming from the Hollywood freeway. The police then find two bodies in a gully next to the freeway. 13-year-old, oh my God, so young. 13-year-old Raymond Davis uh, had been in Echo Park visiting family. He went missing a few weeks before while searching for his dog, uh, reported missing on the June 17th, and Davis died of strangulation. A shoelace had been tied around his neck. Hard to say what else happened to him because of the severe state of decomposition his remains were in. Yeah, 13, just 13. Uh, The other body belonged to just 16-year-old Robert Avia, who had been reported missing by his parents in Hollywood weeks earlier. Stereo wire had been used to strangle him. Again, the body was uh, too severely decomposed to uh, figure out exactly what else had happened to him. The clothing both were wearing helped relatives identify their bodies. November 1st, 1982, 21-year-old Mikhail, or could be Michael, it's just an interesting spelling, Lane goes missing from Modesto. Just over a year later, his skeleton will be found on the side of the road near Ramona, California, down in San Diego County, less than a two-hour drive from Randy's house. Based on his scorecard, investigators will believe Kraft is responsible. So many victims. November 24th, 1982, another victim is found. 26-year-old Brian Witcher, found dead along I-5 near Wilsonville, Oregon. Brian, fully dressed but barefoot, thrown out of a moving vehicle, had been drugged with alcohol and Valium, died of asphyxiation. Brian last seen November 19th in Portland. Uh, Brian, in addition to being known for going hard with his drinking just about every night, also known amongst the crowd he spent time with in a variety of dive bars on Portland's Burnside Street uh, for being aggressively homophobic. Did Randy pick up on that? Did he plan on making him pay for that? Uh, In a way, this guy was probably lucky that the Valium killed him. The day before he was found dead on November 23rd, Kraft flew to Portland for a temporary assignment. And detectives later discover he had been out drinking at the same bar, the locker room, at the same time that Brian had been drinking at before he went missing. And that he'd repeatedly asked Brian for a smoke. December 7th, 1982, Graff is in Grand Rapids, Michigan for an LSI computer conference. Anthony Silvera's jacket will be found at an Amway Grand Plaza Hotel in Grand Rapids. On the night of December 8th, 20-year-old cousins Dennis Alt and Chris Shoeborn went missing from the bar at Kraft's hotel. They were found dead in Plainfield Township, December 9th, they had been dosed with alcohol and Valium and strangled. Uh, Shoeborn found naked with a hotel pen shoved into his penis. Fuck, that would be painful. Alt found fully dressed except for his shoes. His pants were unzipped to expose his penis. Uh, he died of asphyxia by choking. Shoeborn uh, uh, died of strangulation. He'd, of course, lived through the hotel pen torture. Both were last seen alive talking to Randy Kraft at the hotel bar. Uh, Alt's keys were found in Kraft's room on December 8th. A couple weeks later, December 9th, 1982, a, a diver finds 19-year-old Lance Trenton Tag's remains. Uh, excuse me, driver. I don't know why I changed it to diver. I, I, I put that in a water setting for no reason. No, a driver, like a, just a truck driver. Uh, finds remains dead alongside the road near Wilsonville, Oregon. Uh, Randy's busier than ever, just killing guys constantly now. In less than uh, two months, he's killed five guys in three different states. Tags was from Hawaii, but in September had come to live with his grandparents. He'd been drugged with alcohol and Valium and choked on a sock that was forced into his throat. Man, the fucking socks for this guy. So, uh, the Oregon police quickly find a pattern amongst these uh, recent victims. And in the course of their investigation, contact authorities in California, where they find out there is similar victims. Oregon searches airline records, hotel guest lists, rental car company records, looking for visitors from California. Kraft's name appears on this list. He's now a suspect, but one amongst many. Wouldn't even be questioned by Oregon investigators until after he'd been uh, arrested in California later for murders. Randy kills again in Oregon just a a week later. Six guys in less than two months in three states. 
December 18th, 1982, 29-year-old National Guard member Anthony Jose Silveira uh, is found near Medford, Oregon. Medford, a long ways from Portland, four and a half hour drive, 270 miles straight south on I-5. Investigators do not immediately connect Silveira's murder to the others. Uh, Madeira was last seen alive December 3rd, told some friends he was going on a hitchhike or going to hitchhike from the, the coast to his home in Medford, Oregon, planning on traveling down I-5. Anthony died of strangulation. He was found naked with a toothbrush stuffed into a body cavity. So it doesn't say which cavity. Uh, hoping not urethra, but thinking probably that. Uh, December 4th, Kraft had driven a, a rental car from just outside of Portland to Seattle to spend the weekend with his friends, and they noticed that he was wearing a green fatigue jacket with the name Anthony on it. Had he driven all the way down to Medford and killed Anthony? Uh, sure seems like it. And now we jump to 1983, the last year of Randy's kill spree, thank God, one that had begun back in 1971. Randy is 38 at the start of the year. And on January 27th, 21-year-old Eric Herbert Church is found beaten and strangled in Seal Beach. Eric was from Connecticut, had been uh, hitchhiking across the country. He'd been raped, semen found on his body, uh, will later match Kraft's blood type. By the time Kraft's trial begins in 1988, investigators in the U.S. will have just begun using DNA testing to link perpetrators to victims. Uh, Randy strikes again just two weeks later, gets another two men in one night, cousins, Roger Duvall, 20 years old, and 18-year-old Jeffrey Nelson, last seen alive in the early morning hours of February 12th, 1983. Uh, they went missing while out bar hopping. Nelson was found dead at an entrance to the Garden Grove Freeway just a few hours after disappearing. He was found naked by an off-duty police officer. He was lying face down, and when the officer turned over his still warm body, he saw that his genitals had been removed, but that didn't kill him. His cause of death was strangulation, some type of thin red cord uh, based on the mark around his neck. Kraft is an expert in emasculation now. Uh, his body, based on additional wounds, had been thrown from a moving vehicle. And then the remains of Robert or Roger Duvall uh, found the next day, February 13th, in a ravine in the Angeles National Forest, just a few miles from Claremont College, Randy's uh, old stomping grounds. His cause of death listed as compression on the neck. He'd also been raped. His genitals had not been removed. Why did Randy only do that to some victims? Uh, three months later, Randy kills for the last confirmed time. He'll end up convicted of 16 murders, strongly suspected in at least 41. Uh, 38-year-old Randy Kraft is arrested May 14th, 1983, just after 1 a.m. Two Orange County Highway Patrol officers pulled Kraft uh, over on the San Diego Freeway in Mission Viejo after observing his Toyota Celica, Mustang, that's gone now, uh, swerving in and out of lanes. Instead of waiting for the officers to approach him, Kraft gets out of his car, dumps out a beer bottle, walks over with his fly open, admits, yeah, I've been drinking, but I'm sober. Uh, he then takes a sobriety test, fails. So he's arrested for drunk driving. While one of the officers is speaking with Kraft and, you know, helping him perform this uh, sobriety test, uh, another officer goes to inspect his car and finds the body of 67-year-old former Westminster High School chemistry teacher, Lee fucking Manley. In the passenger seat, his genitals had been removed, but not cut off, smashed off. The coroner later determined they'd been mashed in an old chemistry book over and over and over until there was nothing left. Left nipple had been removed in his place. A sticker was found written on the sticker, a single letter F. The game was finished. Kraft had won. Randy told the officers to cuff him, take him away. As they put him in the back seat, he yelled towards the corpse. You failed, Mr. Manley. You failed me. But now I've passed. I'm a straight-A serial killer, you goofy chemistry fuck. Uh, and of course, that didn't happen. But there was another victim in Randy's car. Police found the body of 25-year-old Marine Terry Gramble in the passenger seat. Gamble. Yeah, there we go. Terry, Gam Terry 
Gambrel. Uh, Sergeant Michael Howard approached the vehicle and saw a man slumped over in the passenger seat. He was partially covered by a jacket. There were empty beer bottles around his feet. Sergeant Howard knocked on the window and the man didn't wake up. He opened the door, uh, realized the man was dead. The victim was barefoot, his pants unzipped, his neck covered with red marks as if he'd been strangled. Paramedics would arrive minutes later and pronounce him dead at 1.21 a.m. He had alcohol and uh, Ativan in his system, more of which was found in Kraft's car. Ativan is a brand name version of lorazepam, uh, primarily used to treat problems with anxiety or sleeping. Another brand name uh, uh, version is Xanax. So similar to Valium, when you mix it with uh, alcohol, you can become extremely sedated. Mix enough and you become comatose, a little more and you're dead. Uh, the cause of Gambrel's death was ligature strangulation. The arresting officers performed a quick background check, learned about Kraft's arrest in 1966 for lewd conduct. Officers were able to quickly obtain a warrant and they searched Kraft's car. And what they find is extremely disturbing. They find nine prescription drugs, including a ton of Valium and uh, propran- pro- uh, propranolol, a depressant that causes no surprises, drowsiness. Also, the passenger seat cushion is stained with blood, even though the victim has no bleeding wounds. I wonder how stained that Mustang was before he got rid of it. Uh, Underneath the fabric covering the floorboard, they find 47 photos of young men, many of them naked, unconscious, or dead. Strangers of all, they find Kraft's scoreboard. Kraft had a briefcase in his trunk with a notebook containing 61 coded entries. This notebook soon became known to investigators and then to the press as his death list and then later referred to as his scorecard. On one of the pages, there were two columns of notes, one with 30 entries, one with 31. Police and prosecutors will eventually match 45 of these entries to uh, Kraft's victims. They also will never be able to match any entries with um, uh, two Kraft victims, Terry Gambrell or Eric Church. And some entries will be matched to not one, but two victims. Based on the inve- their eventual interpretation of all of this, investigators believe that there are likely 67 victims at least that died by the hand of Randy Kraft. Um, and they have no idea who 22 of them are. Perhaps Terry Gambrell, Eric Church, uh, are some of the entries and the codes for the murders just never made sense to them. Uh, the entries in this thing are brief, clearly coded, just a few words each, sometimes just one word, you know, stable, airplane hill, Marine Down, uh, Golden Sails, Fuck Mr. Manley. JK about the last one. Uh, Not kidding about uh, one that said Twiggy, though. Pretty fucked up reference to James Dale Reeves, the 19-year-old found with his legs spread and a four-foot-long, three-inch-wide stick shoved into his rectum. Kraft initially tried to tell police that this scorecard was uh, a list of people he wanted to invite to one of his boyfriends, uh, to a a surprise party for his boyfriend. That's a way to phrase that. Uh, one column was the names of people I wanted to invite. The other column were maybes. It was in code, so he wouldn't recognize it. Uh-huh. Uh, police do not buy this story after searching his house. Within hours of his arrest, detectives uh, are searching his home. They get a you know search warrant. They're in his home in Long Beach. Quickly find photos of uh, you know three men from unsolved murder cases. Robert Loggins, found dead in September 1980. We went over how Kraft had photos of Robert naked in his house. Uh, Robert Roger Duvall and Jeffrey Nelson, found dead in February of 1983. Uh, their pictures also found in the house. Kraft's living room couch featured in several of these photos. Uh, photos of victim Eric Church also found. Fibers from a yellow rug in the garage matched fibers found in the body of 18-year-old Scott Hughes, found dead on the uh, Riverside Freeway in 1978. In his garage, Kraft had belts, chains, shoelaces, and clothing from various victims. Items belonging to a man, Christopher uh, Schoenborn, found dead near Grand Rapids, Michigan, also found in Kraft's home. So he had various trophies. Uh, Kraft initially only charged with the murder of Terry Gambrel, though, the dead man found in his car uh, with him while he was arrested. 
Obviously, investigators had the most evidence uh, right out of the gate tying Kraft to this murder. Uh, the plan was to keep him behind bars for this murder before his trial, and then while he waited for his trial, round up evidence for numerous additional murders. Randy will plead not guilty to Terry's murder, May 16th, 1983, just two days after his arrest. The judge triples his bail to make it impossible, basically, for him to get out. Then at a bail reduction hearing, his attorney calls him uh, passive, nonviolent, and hardworking. And then the judge says, uh, come on, you and I both know uh, that this motherfucker cut off at least five dicks, five fucking dicks, five sets of nuts, plus at least one extra ball and part of a sixth dick and a rogue scrotum. This living devil took the fucking chicken skin off the goddamn duffel bag. No, he will not get a reduced bail. Are you crazy? Tree branches and pink socks? Burnt fucking eyeballs? Get the fuck out of here with your reduced bail Bush League bullshit. Not in my house, motherfucker. You can go, you can go get fucked. Uh, no, maybe the judge didn't say any of that. Uh, but Randy did not get his bail reduced. If I was a judge, I'd be thinking that. Uh, prosecutors uh, go to work now analyzing the scorecard. They assume that each entry matches a victim. For example, two-in-one beach referred to Roger Duvall, Jeffrey Nelson. Uh, Marine Carson referred to Ken, uh, Richard Keith. Marine, whose body was found in Laguna Hills in 1978, a parking lot referred to Keith Crotwell, the murder that almost got Randy caught since he admitted to giving him alcohol and Valium, driving around with him, but then gosh dang, just uh, up and vanished after Kraft got, uh, you know, his car stuck and went to get some help. Uh, the prosecutors soon charged him with four more murders. So Jeffrey Nelson, Robert Loggins, Roger Duvall, and Eric Church. Uh, then within a day, charges, char- uh, Kraft is charged with four more homicides. Uh, in California, six in Oregon, and two more in Michigan. Orange County prosecutors end up charged him with 16 total murders and made plans to show that he committed 21 uh, uh, additional murders during the penalty phase. On October 22, 1988, the LA Times publishes the full list of Kraft scorecards, 61 entries. Uh, while being held without bail in isolation, uh, Kraft's, Kraft pleads not guilty to all charges. On September 8, 1983, Orange County Sheriff Brad Gates announces that his team had been able to establish Randy Kraft's propensity without a doubt for sexually deviant behavior that goes back to the 1970 period. Prosecutor Brian Brown said he was ready to take Kraft to trial for 16 counts of murder. Kraft also charged with 11 counts of sodomy, nine counts of sexual mutilation, and three counts of robbery. By the time of the trial, he'd only be tried for two of the sodomy counts, one of the sexual mutilation counts, and the robberies. Sure, he was real nervous about those robbery charges. Wait, what? No, no, fuck that. Yeah, so maybe I cut off a lot of dicks. But I don't steal people's shit unless dicks count. Then, yeah, I'm a dick swiper. Guilty as charged. Uh, Kraft's family and friends were shocked. They couldn't believe the charges against him. Jeff Seelig, still Kraft's boyfriend at the time of his arrest, would say in a 1987 LA Times article, whether he did or did not do the things he's accused of does not really matter to me. I'm still his friend. He was always good to me. Ha, huh. that's interesting. Logic. Uh, on the one hand, Selig's loyalty to his partner is, uh, I guess, admirable. That's some devotion. On the other hand, I think it should probably matter to you if your partner, say, kidnaps, rapes, sexually mutilates, and murders dozens of innocent people, including some kids. Probably should matter quite a bit. Uh, Selig will tell investigators that he and Kraft did regularly pick up and proposition hitchhikers who, if willing, would accompany them to their apartment for threesomes, but said it never got violent. Uh, Selig was adamant that Kraft had never been violent towards him, and they had never you know, seen him display uh, any violent, violent tendencies towards anyone else or heard of him displaying violent tendencies. Uh, Selig would have been able to see what Kraft was thinking during those threesomes, guessing it would have uh, killed the vibe for him. Also, 
If Jeff is saying this, how can his defense team argue that he couldn't control his violent impulses thanks to those early childhood head injuries? So he just never thought about killing, uh, you know, hitchhikers when he and Jeff picked them up? Bullshit. He just knew he'd get caught in those scenarios or have to kill someone he actually cared about not to be caught. So he kept the demons at bay. So he clearly was able to possess a lot of self-control. Uh, Papa Harold Kraft spoke with the LA Times on the phone, said the case was hard on the family. Yeah, I bet. When asked if he supported Randy's claims of innocence, he said, the jury will decide what the truth is. Very diplomatic and feel like he uh, knew his uh, son was guilty. Uh, Kraft's preliminary hearing in Orange County began on September 27th, 1983. Will last seven weeks. Highway patrol officers testified about finding Terry Gambrell in the car and detectives testified about uh, a lot of other evidence. Pa- uh, pathologists testified about the injuries suffered by victims. On uh, his closing argument, Brian Brown called Kraft a true scorecard killer. The judge found the evidence uh, sufficient for trial. Just over a week later, Kraft is indicted by a Lane County grand jury in Oregon uh, on October 6th, 1983 for aggravated murder for the 1981 murder of Michael Dwayne Cluck. Cluck, just 17, last seen at a truck stop near Wilsonville, North Salem. He was a kid who died from blows to the head, 31 blows to the head. Lane County officials put a hold on Kraft since he's already charged with other murders in California and Michigan. Kraft will never end up going to, uh, going to trial in Michigan since he'll be found guilty of so many murders in California that everyone will uh, feel confident that he'll never walk free again. No need to waste millions more dollars in taxpayer money. November 24th, 1983, Kraft reaches out to the LA Times for an interview. He tells LA uh, Times reporter Jerry Hicks, I don't belong here. And Jerry replies, I know, buddy, and I'm going to get you out of here. And Jerry then buys Kraft a huge birthday cake, even though Randy's birthday isn't until March. Inside this cake is everything Kraft needs to escape, a giant file, a hacksaw with a diamond tip blade cut through the cell bars, a shovel to dig himself a tunnel out from underneath the prison, a jackhammer to bust through any uh, you know, hard spots on the prison floor, a stun gun to quietly subdue prison guards, a wig, colored contacts, tuxedo to change into a cool disguise, uh, $100,000 in cash, unmarked bills, new social security card, birth certificate, passport to flee to uh, another country and live under a new alias. Uh, a scooter to ride away from the prison on once he's changed into his tuxedo. It was a very big birthday cake. The guards were suspicious, sure, but also thought, man, I wish someone cared that much about my birthday. No, of course not. I just thought it was fun to picture that uh, massive of a cake and uh, think that no one would bother to check what's inside of it. Uh, For real now, Kraft admitted to Jerry to having contact with maybe one or two of the men he was accused of murdering, but that was just a coincidence. When asked about the list, uh, he called the police uh, stupid for trying to link the list to murders and insisted it's just a code, uh, a list of some friends of me, uh, of my mates and mine, he said. Kraft also said my friends read in the newspapers that I'm some kind of Jekyll and Hyde because my side of things hasn't been presented. Mm-hmm, yeah, that's it. His friends think he has a dark side because of news articles, not because there's a lot of evidence that he cut off a lot of dicks. Uh, Kraft also claimed that he was arrested because he was gay. Totally. Police do that all the time. They think, hey, uh, are you bored? Me too. Let's, let's go grab a gay guy and accuse him of over 60 murders because he's gay. I mean, that happens constantly. Probably once a day, police are accusing a new gay guy of killing over 60 people. Uh, not saying people have never been targeted by law enforcement for being gay, by the way. But in this case, this is a fucking absurd claim. Uh, Kraft had contacted LA Times with an offer for multiple interviews to share his side of the story. But then Kraft canceled the subsequent interviews after Hicks published the first article which talked about the crimes rather than Kraft's claims of discrimination and innocence. Poor baby. 
No one wants to hear his side of the story. They're just so hatefully focused on lots of hard physical evidence that he did so many horrible things. Uh, January of 1984, prosecutors filed notice of their intent to prove 21 more murders over a 12-year period in three states. Over time, eight more charges are filed, six in Oregon, two in Michigan. And again, Kraft will never go to trial in Michigan or Oregon for those charges. August of 1984, Kraft's defense attorney, Doug Otto, withdraws from the case because Kraft has insisted on serving as (laughs) co-counsel. Yeah, I bet Doug wanted off that case. Doug, enough. Here's our strategy. Strategy. This is my life we're talking about. Every time the prosecution presents more evidence linking me to another murder, you put me on the stand and you ask me what I think. And that's when I will say, typical homophobes, am I right? And then we high five. And then we together synchronize, twist around to face the jury, throw our hands up in disbelief, shake our heads, laugh, and I head back to sit with you behind the desk. Also, Doug, when this is all over and I'm free, would you maybe want to go grab a drink with me? It'll be fun. Come on, I can tie you up, rape you with a tree branch, cut your dick off, and shove a sock in your ass. Too soon? Come on, come on. I'm just joshing. Just trying to lay the mood, Doug. Uh, August 30th, 1985, Orange County prosecutors accuse Randy Kraft of 37 total murders. They'll, uh, they charge him with 16, uh, plan to prove, uh, you know, uh, 21 additional and, you know, accuse him of the 37 total. LA Times publishes a list of all these murder victims. Uh, July 27th, 1987, Randy's former long-term live-in boyfriend, Jeff Graves, dies of complications from AIDS. Graves lived with Kraft between 1971, 1976, uh, was the guy many suspected of helping Randy commit some of the murders. At the time of his death, police had been preparing to question him further on a lot of those murders. Kraft's trial finally starts September 26, 1988, overseen by Judge Donald McCartan. The judge barred any references to victims besides the 16 Kraft was charged with murdering. Uh, Kraft was represented by Thomas McDonald, uh, who called his client a homeowner, taxpayer, and hard worker, just like many other citizens of our country. God, I wish the guy's name was Ronald instead of Thomas. I would love it if Kraft had been represented by Ronald McDonald. Uh, the prosecution will call in over 150 witnesses and present over 1,000 exhibits. The defense presents alibis, tries to propose alternate suspects, primarily the other two so-called freeway killers, William Bonin and Patrick Carney. Kraft's trial will be the most expensive in Orange County history. It'll last over a year, including the penalty phase. Uh, the DA's office uh, will be given an extra $310,000 to hire new staff just because of the Kraft case. On the opening day of his trial, documents accuse Kraft of eight more murders in LA County. Uh, those documents are made public which brings the total to 45 uh, murders prosecutors in three states think they have enough evidence to charge him with. Meanwhile, Kraft's defense argues in their opening statement that Prosecutor Brown tried to inflame the jury and have the jury arrive at a preconceived decision. Thomas McDonald argues that the case is based on suspicion, innuendo, and prosecutorial rhetoric. Uh, Kraft's defense objected to photos of the bloody car seat beneath Gamble's body, arguing that the pictures were inflammatory because the prosecution couldn't prove the blood belonged to any of the 16 victims. In February 1989, Kraft's attorneys tried to present various alibis that proved he was in L.A. County during many of the Orange County murders. For example, on February 22, 1989, a swimwear distributor testified that Kraft was working for him on the night of one of the murders, but the alibi didn't completely cover all the possible times the murder in question could have occurred. Same for all the other defense attempts to show he was somewhere else when the murder occurred. They could never completely shut the window. Uh, trying to make the jury think that other freeway killers were responsible for Kraft's murders, also not working. For example, the judge refused to let McDonald tell the jury that William Bonin was a suspect in the Kraft murders. 
McDonald wanted, wanted to introduce testimony that fibers found on one of the craft victims were compared with fibers in the Bonin case. Uh, the prosecutor argued that the testimony was irrelevant because the lab found that those fibers did not match. Uh, April 6, 1989, prosecutors showed photos that tied Kraft to several murders. Photos presented by the prosecution were found on a 24-frame roll of film in Kraft's house. 13 frames showed a Christmas party and an outdoor scene. The 14th frame shows a young man in the car or in a car. The prosecution argued that the man's clothes prove it was Eric Herbert Church, found dead January 27, 1983. Uh, next seven photos are of Roger Duvall. In some of them, he appears dead or unconscious. Two photos show his wrist tied together with a shoelace. One shows a ligature mark on his neck. Wee bit incriminating. Next three frames show a mini mall parking lot on Silver Spur Road down the hill from the St. Ives Laboratories. There was a one-hour photo store a few feet from where the photos were taken. An aerial shot presented by the prosecution showed that St. Ives was just two blocks from the mini mall. Law enforcement argued the parking lot pictures make it tough for Randy to claim he bought those pictures of Duvall from some porno dealer in Hollywood, as he had claimed. Store records didn't go back far enough to prove Kraft had his film developed there, but the store spokesperson testified that it was not uncommon for people to develop pornographic pictures at their store. Uh, the prosecution gave closing arguments on April 24th, 1989. The prosecutor called Kraft's car a rolling platform for death. Mr. Kraft was able to get control of people you would never suspect he could control. Good old alcohol and Valium combo. Kraft had to rely on deception to control his victims. He was not a physically imposing man. His height and weight, not listed anywhere I can find, but one witness uh, before he was arrested described him as being around 5'8". And he had a very slight build. I'd put him around 140, 150 pounds. And he didn't look like he was hitting the weight room. In a fair fight, he was not going to overpower many of his victims. But, uh, you know, he didn't give a shit about fighting fair. May 12th, 1989, following the jury deliberating for a total of 11 days, Randy Kraft is convicted on 16 counts of murder. He's acquitted of one count of sodomy, Convicted on another and convicted on one count of emasculation. Randy not convicted on the robbery charges, though. He had beaten the system. God, he was happy. No. Uh, now for the penalty phase of the trial, which began a little over three weeks later, June 5th. Randy's attorney presented family photos. Uh, jail employees testified that he was a model prisoner. A uh, former coworker said Kraft was normal and friendly. A psychiatrist testified he had uh, no control over violent impulses. What was he supposed to do? Just not cut a dick off? Again, I hate this no control argument because he did control himself in front of his boyfriend, Jeff Selig, all the time. Clearly, he could control his violent impulses. Uh, prosecutors chose to introduce eight additional murders in the penalty phase. The state also called on Joseph Fancher, the kid who got away all those years earlier in 1970, right? The, uh, the man who was just 13 when he was assaulted by Kraft in 1970. He had also previously testified at Kraft's preliminary hearing. Fancher testified about how he was drugged, raped by Kraft, Fancher had kept the rapes a secret until Orange County investigators knocked on his door in Colorado in 1983. After Kraft's 1983 arrest, uh, uh, James Sidebotham, the chief investigator for the Orange County Sheriff's Department in the Randy Kraft serial murder case, asked for any police reports involving Kraft. One was about that assault of a 13-year-old boy. Fancher said he had kept the rape a secret because how do you tell something like that to your mom, something you don't understand yourself? He said he had uh, ran away from his home in Westminster on his bike. He met Kraft at the Huntington Beach Pier. Kraft gave him a cigarette, offered to let him stay in his apartment. Kraft offered him sex with some random woman. But then once he got there, Kraft showed him pornographic pictures of him having sex with another man. Kraft then offered him red pills and a glass of wine. He said he didn't feel anything from the pills, so Kraft gave him four more. The drugs made him drowsy, too drowsy to resist Kraft's advances. He said, it was like I was a rag doll. He would testify that Kraft forced him to engage in oral sex, 
raped him, then threatened to kill him if he moved while Kraft left the room. He said Kraft then raped him again and slapped him hard enough to bruise his face. Fancher would leave, but due to the repeated rapes, it was difficult for him to walk. Someone helped him across the street. He was taken to the hospital. Uh, He told police he was drugged, but didn't mention the rest. And then he just carried that heavy burden uh, for years, that poor bastard. Kraft's defense attorney, McDonald, said in his closing argument, killing Randy is not going to restore life to anyone. The only thing that would be accomplished by execution is more violence. Another family would lose a loved one. Another mother would bury her son. Okay, yeah, sure. But uh, but on the other hand, you know, fuck him. Uh, on August 8th, uh, 1989, the jury agrees, fuck him, and they recommend the death penalty. And then on November 29th, 1989, Kraft is formally sentenced to death by Judge Donald A. McCartan. McCartan called the torture and mutilation of the victims, uh, saying, just hard for me to comprehend. And then with that quote I gave earlier in the episode, I can't imagine doing these things in, a sci- in scientific experiments on a dead person, much less someone alive. The judge told Kraft that he'd been receiving letters from parents of missing kids somewhere down the line with response to your legal grounds for appeals. Maybe you might give some thought in your waning moments to helping these people out. But Kraft, uh, you know, wouldn't do that. Hasn't done that. Just an evil fuck to his, to his very core. Kraft said before the judgment was pronounced, I have not murdered anyone and any reasonable review of the record will show that. Kraft's family does not attend his sentencing hearing. His sister, Doris Lane, will tell the LA Times, just say about us that Randy comes from a very strong family. We believe he is innocent. We don't believe he received a fair trial. I will never believe that Randy ever killed anyone. I get it, Doris. I mean, who would want to believe that someone you thought you knew would do what he did? I wouldn't want to believe it either. A lot of motivation to stay in denial, right? Fucking secret lives. Some people are so good at keeping them. Scary. Uh, Doris is a victim in all this too. If her brother wasn't such a piece of shit, he could admit to everything uh, to at least let his family move on and stop thinking he's somehow been wrongly incarcerated. Selfish to the core, that dude. Uh, The day after his death sentence, Kraft is transferred to San Quentin State Prison where he still sits today. For a while, Kraft spent his time on death row with other prisoners. He seemed to do pretty well in prison. I imagine he's been able to find some other guys who like to uh, fuck a little rough. Just guessing. Also likes to play bridge. How fun for him. My grandma Betty loves to play bridge. I'm sure Kraft would love to play a game with my grandma Betty. Uh, before he died in 2019, Kraft played a lot with Lawrence Bittaker, possibly Bittaker, uh, one of the toolbox killers, along with Roy Norris, uh, who, excuse me, along with Roy Norris, raped, tortured, and murdered five teenage girls in 1979. Uh, one of America's first criminal profilers, FBI Special Agent John Douglas, said that Roy was the most disturbing individual for whom I have ever created a criminal profile. Uh, Lawrence liked to use uh, shit like pliers, ice picks, and a fucking sledgehammer to torture girls with. What a fun bridge partner. Kraft also played uh, with and still plays with one of the Sunset Strip Killers, a.k.a. the Hollywood slasher Douglas Clark. After getting caught for a series of murders in 1980, Clark has been uh, in San Quentin since 1983, currently 74 years old. Doug, uh, another real, real bad boy. After murdering a 20-year-old sex worker, he decapitated her, wrapped her head in a T-shirt that read Daddy's Girl, and left it in a pine box in a Studio City alleyway, alleyway after using it to fillet himself. Took a page out of Kemper's playbook with that one. Uh, Clark and his girlfriend, Carol Bundy, were convicted of six murders. Uh, he was a big necrophilia guy. Another bridge partner, one of the other freeway killers, previous suck subject, William Bonin, Billy Gutterballs. Uh, he beat Kraft to San Quentin by several years and then stopped playing bridge on February 23rd, 1996. Uh, it was hard for him to play bridge after that because he was executed by lethal injection inside the gas chamber. Uh, I bet that was a sad day for Kraft, Right. He then knew for sure that he would never get to tie Billy up and hear him scream while he cut his balls off and raped him or something. 
Uh, when Kraft hasn't been playing bridge, he's uh, been filing lawsuits. Kraft's first appeal argued that the California gas chamber violated the First Amendment by forcing an inmate to actively participate in his own killing. 1992, Kraft filed a $60 million lawsuit against author Dennis McDougal, the writer of Angel of Darkness, we've referenced, sued the publisher as well. Uh, the balls in this guy <laughs> sued him for uh, defamation. My God, does have some serious balls. Maybe, maybe uh, his balls have extra power because he cut off so many other pairs of balls, some kind of Highlander shit. He argued that the book unfairly portrayed him as a sick, twisted man and that the book damaged his prospects for future employment. <laughs> when I get out of this prison on appeal someday and then don't go back to prison for so many of the other murder charges in three states I'll still be facing and I try to get to a job and get back to my computer business, who's going to hire me after all this talk of cutting off dicks and burning people's eyeballs? Why did Dennis have to slander me? Why couldn't he have written less about tree branch sodomy and more about my incredible organization skills? Uh, the suit cost McDougal uh, about $50,000 in legal fees before Randy's case was dismissed in June of 1994. What a bunch of bullshit. Uh, McDougal then will, will then sue Randy back in September of 94 uh, for legal fees and said, I'm not pursuing this because I think Randy will have a cache of gold doubloons under his mattress. What concerns me about all this is that a felon and one who has been convicted of the worst crimes imaginable can sue anybody they want with impunity, excuse me, on a regular basis. They clog the courts with phony baloney suits and the state allows them to do it without charging them a, da- a dime to file. And there is something seriously fucked about the ability of people to do that. Uh, not sure if he won this countersuit or not. August 10th, 2000, the California Supreme Court upholds Kraft's death sentence in an appeal attempt. Kraft argued that the judge in his original trial had erred by allowing prosecutors to use the death list, a.k.a. the scoreboard, as evidence, which prejudiced the jury. Uh-huh. Uh, the Supreme Court responded that the list was uh, relevant to this case. As of 2000, Orange County has spent over $11 million on the case and subsequent appeals, so that's fun. Uh, the following year, in 2001, Kraft, or someone claiming to be Kraft, wrote a statement on the Canadian Coalition Against the Death Penalty Forum saying Randy was convicted on hysteria, innuendo, and common prejudice against gay persons such as himself. There never was any real evidence against him. Well, there was so much. There is none today. Instead, the prosecutor lied to make up for no evidence and hid evidence helpful to Randy. The police also hid helpful evidence at critical times. And the trial judge looked the other way, a Marine Corps veteran prejudiced against gay persons. Mm-hmm. I love the no real evidence. Motherfucker, your last victim was in the passenger seat when you got pulled over for a DUI. Uh, after decades of silence, Randy spoke to the media again in early 2015. Kraft, then 71, contacted the Pride Los Angeles. A grain craft dressed in dark blue pants and a light blue shirt told one of their reporters, Matthew Bojko, during an interview over a lunch of microwave Southern fried chicken sandwiches and cheese and bean burritos, this has been bottled up so long. I'm getting older. I'm going to die here. And I'm frustrated. My attorneys aren't saying these things. If I don't say something, it will never be said. Over the course of 10 months through written correspondence and three in-person meetings at San Quentin State Prison, Kraft repeatedly maintained his innocence and alleged he had been the victim of a criminal and judicial system biased against him because of his sexual orientation. He told reporters he had no expectation of ever being released, saying, my life is here now. Almost all of the people I care for are here. I don't have any former life to return to. It's obliterated. I don't pine for release. My life is here. I'll die here. And that's okay with me. As for his final victim, the guy dead in the passenger seat, he told Bojko that he was trying to save his life. He's not a serial killer. He is a hero. He said that his car was weaving, not because he was fucking hammered drunk. 
was Carl was weeping because he was trying to help Terry gamble and drive at the same time. He said, I was shaking him, trying to wake him, shouting at him, trying to see if anything was in his mouth, blocking his airway, looking to see if he was wounded or bleeding. Then I noticed the lights of the CHP patrol car that was pulling me over. He's a fucking good Samaritan. The whole serial killer thing, it's a big misunderstanding. He, he just kept, you know, coming across guys who've been brutally raped. All he did was shove some socks up their asses to try and stop the bleeding. Is it a crime to be very bad at first aid? Uh, he also said that Terry was alive when he was pulled over and that the police basically let him die intentionally so that those homophobes could charge him with murder. The CHP, California Highway Patrol, the real killers. Uh, the Pride clearly did not buy any of this shit and listed much of the evidence we have went over uh, to give his statements context. And that did not uh, sit well with Randy. So he's been real quiet ever since. Now he doesn't grant interviews. Nobody has bought his bullshit, so he's fucking done talking. As of 2022, Kraft, now 77 years old, has been on death row for 33 years. Uh, back in April of 2013, journalist Patrick Kiger published the article, Why Isn't Randy Kraft Dead? for Orange Coast Magazine. He spoke to jury foreman James Lytle, who said he's lived longer in prison than the whole lives of most of the kids he killed. I mean, come on now. Orange County Magazine also found that Kraft signed up for a website that matches prisoners with pen pals, so that's fun. His profile read, I'm not an old fogey. I like to read all sorts of things and listen to most kinds of music. I enjoy and I'm pretty good at crossword puzzles and Sudoku, and I like to write. I am friendly, low-key, and sincere. <laughs> friendly, low-key, and sincere. Oh, God, this guy will just not face himself. What a fucking coward. After complaining that, uh, I'm pretty low-key. I mean, every once in a while, you know, I'll get riled up enough to uh, cut a dick off. But for the most part, pretty low-key. Uh, after complaining that uh, most of the mail he received was from true crime fanatics or people with strange fantasies, he wrote, I'm beginning to wonder if there are any sincere people out there. For fuck's sake. Uh, finally, there's a rumor that Kraft hasn't received any actual visitors uh, in prison in, in years. Uh, that the last non-journalist visitor he received was way back in January of 1990, weeks after he arrived on death row in San Quentin. Uh, the visitor was 76-year-old Lee Manley, long-retired Westminster High School chemistry teacher. He brought with him a copy of Kraft's report card with a big fat F next to a bunch of A's on it. His interaction with Kraft was brief. He slid the report card across the table, locked eyes with Kraft and said, I knew you were a failure then. And the whole world knows you're a failure now. Then he stood up, unzipped his pants, fucking flopped his dick out on the table and said, you'll never cut this hog off, Randy. Not ever. Uh, then he put his dick back in his pants, tossed Randy a single sock before walking away and firing one final shot. Now go sit on a slide rule, then shove this up your ass. You don't make a mess of your cell, you worthless fucking twerp. It's quite the mic drop moment that never happened. Let's head on out of here. Good job, soldier. You made it back. Barely. Randy Stephen Kraft. What an absolute nightmare of a human being. So brutal. He inflicted so much pain on people only guilty of taking a spike drink from someone they thought was a nice guy. Someone out partying with them. Uh, maybe someone nice enough to buy him a drink at the bar. Give him a drink after picking him up while they're hitchhiking. Next thing they know, they're feeling drowsy, real drowsy, helpless, hard for them to move. Then the nice guy gets real not nice, ties up their hands so they can't fight back. He starts biting them, cutting, raping, starts shoving objects inside of them, burning them, removing body parts, and there's nothing they can do to stop it. And he doesn't stop. The pain will not end until they overdose or are strangled or have their head bashed in or are stabbed. 
their final moments, a confusing orgy of pain and sexual violation. And all for what? Also, Randy Kraft could come the way he preferred to that moment. So he could maybe uh, take out a little of the hate he felt towards society or towards himself or towards other men or just live some fucked up BDSM extreme fantasy. And then after ending dozens of lives, after causing hundreds so much grief and pain, pain of losing a loved one, a son, a brother, a husband, a father, a friend, after all that still to this day, doesn't have the decency just to fucking admit everything. Give closure to anyone. What a complete piece of shit. He's had decades to self-reflect all the time in the world, but he's just rotten, refuses to look inward. Some people, it's amazing to me how they will just refuse to do what's right till the bitter end. Even when there's no longer any real incentive to keep uh, lies alive, they just do it, I guess, just to be hurtful, just to control something, just to hold on to the lies. So they don't ever have to step back and face who they really are. Some people are truly fucking evil, irredeemably so. Monsters who deserve to be put to death. They don't deserve to have another happy thought or to enjoy another pleasant conversation or some bridge game with a fellow human. They deserve to be fucking ended. They deserve to become a cautionary tale to others like them. If you pursue this path and you're caught, you're going to be ended. I know there are problems with the death penalty. I get the argument that the uh, risk of an innocent person dying, uh, you know, unfairly uh, must be avoided at all costs. But fuck, I want Randy Kraft to die and painfully so. Randy Kraft, a scorecard killer. We have covered uh, others as evil. Not sure it's possible to get any more evil than he was. Whew. Time now for today's top five takeaways. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Number one, Randy Kraft is the rare killer who was unbelievably sexually violent, but seemed to have had a normal childhood. His parents were not abusive. Mother and sisters loved him, spoiled him. Father distanced, but worked hard to provide for the family. Didn't have much money, but Randy also didn't go without the things he needed. Uh, Randy reminds me a little bit of Ted Bundy, but had an even better childhood. At least he didn't spend most of his childhood thinking his grandparents were his parents and his mom was his sister. Number two, Randy Kraft was an extremely prolific serial killer. From 1971 to 1983, Randy murdered at least 16 people. Prosecutors in three states thought they had enough evidence to charge him with a total of 45 murders. And many familiar with the case think he's killed at least 67. Number three, for a while, Randy Kraft played bridge with Bill Bonin and other death row inmates at San Quentin State Prison in California. Not known if Bonin knew that Kraft had tried to blame him for some of his crimes. Number four, Randy Kraft had a number of signatures that made him stand out from other active serial killers in Southern California, like shoving socks up victims' rectums to stop anal bleeding while they died, also drugged almost all his victims with a lethal combination or, you know, turned out to be lethal for them because of what he was doing with that, doing, doing to them of Valium and alcohol. And he did a lot of genital mutilation. Dude hated left nipples more than any other serial killer I've ever heard of. But number five, new info. January of 2000, Kraft biography author Dennis McDougal interviewed a man named Bob Jackson who confessed to murdering two hitchhikers with Randy Kraft, one in Wyoming in 1975, one in Colorado in 1976. He said they then murdered people in California in 1977 and that Kraft had nicknamed him Twiggy, an entry on his scorecard. Jackson also told McDougal that the list only included the more memorable murders and that the true number of victims was close to 100. McDougal reported Jackson to Orange County Sheriff's Department and turned in the tape-recorded interviews. Uh, detectives questioned, Zach, questioned Jackson but never filed charges. Authorities in Colorado and Wyoming uh, could not confirm the victims. Maybe Bob was just a lunatic looking for some notoriety or maybe Randy inflicted his special brand of hell on over 100 people. Time suck. Top five takeaways. 
The scorecard killer Randy Kraft has been sucked. What a sick fuck. Uh, Feeling grateful I have never fallen into the clutches of a sadist like that. What a terrible way to leave this earth. Literally hope that guy chokes on a dick and dies. Preferably his own after someone has cut it off. Uh, Thank you to Queen of Bad Magic, Lindsay Cummins. Thanks to Logan Keith for directing and producing today. Thanks to our newest team member, a mystery producer. We'll properly introduce uh, very soon at the gathering. And then on the shows, uh, thanks to Bit Elixir for upkeep on the Time Suck app, the Art Warlock, Logan Keith, Creighton Merch, at badmagicmerch.com. So much cool merch coming down the pipe. Uh, he's been uh, extra inspired recently. And uh, and he's been helping run the socials, of course. Thanks to Sophie Evans for the initial research this week. Thanks to the All Seen Eyes moderating the Cult of the Curious private Facebook page. The Mod Squad for making sure Discord keeps running smooth. And everyone over on the Time Suck Reddit thread. Uh, we'll have, uh, you know, new team members to introduce soon, as well as, uh, who will be doing some of the community building work. Appreciate all the emails of folks offering their services. Uh, sorry if we haven't gotten back to you on some of the uh, messaging platforms, you know, we're still in a little bit of a transitional period. We, uh, we appreciate the grace and thanks to every, uh, uh, buddy over on Reddit, keeping the time suck subreddit active and the bad magic subreddit as well. Next week on time suck, we stay in the realm of true crime, but we don't tell the kind of story we usually tell here on time suck. Guessing most of you who uh, have at least heard of the Netflix series Inventing Anna, uh, if you didn't watch it. The series was inspired by the true story of Anna uh, Sorokin, uh, who said she was Anna Delvey, and, and uh, the article in New York Magazine titled How Anna Delvey Tricked New York's Party People. Anna Sorokin is a Russian-born German con artist uh, who in 2017 was arrested for defrauding uh, or intentionally deceiving major financial institutions, banks, hotels, and acquaintances in the U.S., for a total of $275,000. And it's thought she cost people a lot more than that. She made people think she was the wealthy daughter of a German industrial titan set to inherit tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions, a vast fortune. She had nothing. Uh, Her parents, not rich, let alone wealthy. Uh, She used this lie to con her way into New York City's most elite socialite circles, uh, made multiple millionaires think she was one of them, almost got away with getting a loan for over $20 million based on nothing but a web of lies. Uh, but so that's her story. But do you know the story of another German swindler, Clark Rockefeller? Clark, before he got ta- caught, uh, Jesus, before he got caught, <laughs> uh, was a much more successful con artist than Anna. And his story, while less known, way more juicy. Those who met Clark when he appeared in the New York City uh, socialite scene in the 1990s thought the young man was an eccentric member of the ultra wealthy Rockefeller clan. He certainly acted the part. He had a collection of art supposedly worth millions. It looked legit. Uh, a Harvard Business School graduate wife who was uh, a very high up exec at McKinsey, an international management consulting agency. To his friends, he offered to put them in touch with everyone from directors of art museums to George W. Bush. Said he worked in a stunning variety of high powered careers himself. You know, one of them uh, sold his uh, aerospace company for a billion dollars. All a lie. Discovered when Clark kidnapped his own daughter after losing custody in the divorce. Uh, investigators found out that he was actually a man named Christian Gerhardt Strider a German native who had come to America in the 1970s and reinvented himself a shocking number of times, first in San Marino, California, as a member of the English nobility, Christopher Chichester, uh, then as a financial big shot known as Christopher Crowe, big-time Hollywood producer, showbiz, before finally becoming Clark Rockefeller, the fake heir. And what's more, Christopher Chichester was uh, wanted on uh, a suspicion of a double, double homicide in California. Uh, how did all this turn out? What lies did Clark Rockefeller peddle for three decades? How on earth did people believe him? Uh, the insane story of one con man's rise and fall next week on Time Suck. And now let's head over to this week's Time Sucker updates. 
First update, uh, a good one coming in from smart sucker Greg Shirell, who shares his recent success with, with us all. And while I've never met Greg, uh, I'm proud of him. The story is inspiring. He writes, hail to Lord Suckington, his exonerated, let's be real, your face has been implemented in some uh, crime somewhere. Uh, master of mumbles, duke of dumbassery, sheriff of shrooms, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, it has taken two years, but as of July 22nd, 2022, I have caught up on Time Suck. I started the show during the height of the pandemic, fell in love with the humor and fascinating stories, worked through uh, it all at Walmart, at Walmart in the auto department. So between doing that, listening to Rapper Logic, Time Suck, and finding enjoyment in cars, uh, it made me go to school and graduate in Hale with honors. Nabbing a degree in automotive technology. Uh, Walmart, my boss, wouldn't give me the schedule I needed to attend, so I quit, found new employment, bounced around a bit, finally landed a great job I love. Listening to you and logic inspired me to take the chance. I was concerned about not making it. Tried several times in uh, my early 20s. Being too old, 32 at the time, I started school, but you invented something thriving, and logic has always said, if you got to do something, you, uh, if you got something you want to do or be, do it and kill it. Uh, you might dig him. If you haven't heard him, I suggest Buried Alive and Upgrade. So give it a listen. I've uh, been a long time listening to you and your mumble mouth misdirecting bullshit, but I love it and laugh at almost everything except Mama Picton. Fucking yikes. Uh, Bobby Willie uh, needs to take her out back for the old yellow treatment. I'm typing more stream of consciousness. Was going to include some suck points and notes or questions regarding the show, but this has gone on long enough. No, I'm not sorry for the length of this email. Suck it if you don't like it. I'll end this with wise words from a wise man. Don't wake the bear guys or the bear is going to try and fuck you dub coming or no sorry dumb coming or however you spell it uh sincerely your loyal spaces are greg shirell fucking mushmouth. greg thank you for the uh, for the pronunciation guide on your last name i probably would have said cheryl uh forgot about logic i listened uh to the tracks you recommended while putting together the updates for this week and yeah great stuff man uh, that guy is prolific by the way so many tracks so good on him and uh that graduation gown looks good on you greg thanks for sending the pic uh, and good job, man. On, on, on trying again where you felt you had failed before, you know, uh, numerous times, uh, honored to have inspired you. You know, you kept pushing. Now you're where you wanted to be. And now you in turn will inspire others to keep hustling and chasing their dreams. Grind respects grind, Greg, and I respect yours. Hopefully you, uh, have inspired others now. And I bet you have. Hail Nimrod, man. Uh, enjoy that diploma and all the pride and good fortune that comes with it. And now another positive message after a dark ass suck. Uh, from Do Good and Sack, Will Goheen, who writes, Hey, Master Sucker, longtime listener, first-time writer. Just wanted to say thanks for all you do and how you managed to make the dark funny. In a way, you have a shade of Carlin, and I don't think there was a better compliment you could give to a comedian. Uh, agreed. Uh, man, he's that guy. Got a long way to go. Uh, I've been following you since Birdcast, as far as the podcast goes, and your stand-up even longer. So enough stroke in that ego. Why I really wrote in earlier this year, uh, we started a, a Why I Really Wrote In. Earlier this year, we started a small handyman company that is growing fairly well so far. I have confidence that will become great. That being said, when we started this, we both sat down and talked about what we wanted out of this. And I had a few, uh, but the one I'm writing to you about is because of you, we are going to donate to a different charity every month. But on top of that, I set up a Patreon and I'm adding a raffle to go along with it and was hopeful you could share it on Time Suck. This has nothing to do with our business, but I thought if we're going to have a voice, I'm trying to get there, but I suck at it. Uh, social media, yeah. Uh, we will do a live drawing if I can figure out how every month and the winner gets 50% of the prize, 40% to a charity we pick, 10% for us for running it. The link is patreon.com slash cowboy construction. Thanks for all that you do each and every week. I keep deleting stuff. I type because I keep hearing you read the same words from other suckers. So I will end with this later. Well, thank you, Will. 
That was a very nice Carlin compliment. Uh, he's my all-time favorite. And good on you for setting up a charity to try and do some more good in the world. They can always use more good. Uh, when life is going well for us, I feel like it's important to pay some of that forward, do some good for some others. The more of us do that, the better this world gets for everybody. Helping others uh, have more doesn't take away from what you have. It can add to it. So figure out that charity and make it fucking happen, Will. And now for some darkness. Episode-related darkness. Related to the sex slave murder suck from a few weeks ago from uh, fellow true crime junkie and sucker Vanessa Wolf, who writes, Hey, mother sucker, to make those shitbags even worse, I thought you might like to know some more info. I read a few books about these murders, and one of the set of girls they picked up were trying to become porn stars. So when he killed them, he told Charlene it was not good enough because it was too consensual. Because they lured them to uh, come to the van for a threesome, so they had no idea they were in danger before they were killed. Yeah, man. The first time Gerald began raping a girl in the van, Charlene got so mad she pulled over, jumped out, and shot Gerald, non-fatal, just grazed his arm. Unfortunately, the girls in the van didn't run while they had the chance while they were outside fighting. Also, the last victim happened shortly after Charlotte, or excuse me, Charlene promised Gerald a woman for his birthday, even if she, quote, had to stay out and hunt all day. Just fucking awful details. Thought you'd like to know them anyways. Hail Nimrod, thanks for bringing some lesser-known cases to light. Well, thank you for the extra info, Vanessa. Uh, curious if you'll have extra details on Randy Kraft as well. Crazy how many serial killers there have been. Crazy how many there have been in just California alone in like the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s. Oh, man. People with stories uh, just as insane as much more well-known killers. Okay, one more from longtime sucker Red Alms, who just had an incredible, awkward social, uh, incredibly awkward social experience. Thanks to a recent episode. Red writes, Hello, Dan and crew. God damn it. I may have just experienced the most awkward encounter of my life due to the most recent Time Suck episode. For context, for context, I'm a college student studying aeronautical engineering for my fifth year and have had to pick up a full-time job to relieve financial stress and pay for a tuition. Uh, I work third shift and between that and summer courses, I basically just work and sleep. Uh, today, however, I had no class, so I figured it would be great to get a little elevated and hit the gym. I toked up, (laughs) went to my apartment's gym, started the new episode on the sex slave murders, finished up a great workout, began walking back home when the unexpected happened. I'm feeling very high when you, my good sir, began to sing as Vladimir Putin and Albert Fish doing a duet. I normally can handle myself with the show's fake outs and jokes in public, but I couldn't this time. I started to laugh really hard, like crying actual tears and could not breathe. With all that happening, uh, who enters from stage right? A very old, very religious neighbor of mine who was very lovely when we spoke in the past. She walks over to see me choking, sweating, crying, trying to get my shit together while being serenaded by pony by a pony boy duet. She runs over to me, <laughs> runs in quotes as fast as she can uh, to check on me. I'm now freaking the fuck out that another human being is coming into contact with me in this situation. I gather my bearings. I tell her I'm okay. I was just laughing really hard at my podcast. She asks about it. And from my exp- explanation of the show to her, she says that it doesn't really seem like something she would like. Tough crowd, I guess. I finally scuttled away and walked home as fast as possible. After all these years of the show, I finally had an awkward public encounter because of the show. I thought I was immune at this point. Fantastic episode as always. Hope you have a relaxing summer. Hope to see you live again soon. Uh, You were great last fall when we saw you in Ohio. My twin and I were by the stairs on the stage. We were the tall clones wearing (laughs) matching Chase Kemper and Krull t-shirts whose hands you shook when you were leaving. We've been bummed that we couldn't do a meet and greet afterwards at the time. Uh, So that handshake meant a lot more than you could know. You've been a huge inspiration to us for years. Sorry for the ranty email. My heart is still trying to beat out of my chest from walking home. If by some chance you read this on the show, could you give my brothers Garrett and Nate a shout out? We are all really busy and Time Suck gives us something to catch up on when we get the chance to talk, which means a lot to me. Hail Nimrod, Red, and it's uh, Ohms. O-O-M-S. 
Uh, Red, the scene uh, you just painted really cracked me up. I love it. Uh, and hello, Garrett, and hello, Nate. Sounds like you have fantastic uh, brothers. I hope to see you all at another show. Stay focused on the uh, awesome degree you're chasing. What a fun field you have to look forward to working in. Hope you have a less concerning running with that neighbor of yours soon. She sounds she sounds lovely. I like that she ran over to help your high ass. Uh, Hail Nimrod, everyone. Thanks for sending in all the messages. Thanks, time suckers. I needed that. We all did. Another Bad Magic Productions podcast is in the online listing vault. Uh, please do not cut anyone's dicker balls off or any scrotums off this week. And remember, socks are mostly for feet. Sometimes for hand puppets, never for plugging up buttholes. And mostly remember to keep on sucking. Add Magic Productions. Oh man, uh, I'm feeling pretty good after that episode. You know, uh, I feel like I uh, I learned the most unexpected things sometimes. Uh, from these episodes after all the research on this one i mean i was curious about the whole sock butt situation and i did stuff a sock up my ass before the episode just to see like sometimes they get a little sweaty um a little swampy and i wanted to see how i'd feel afterwards and i gotta say this little this little bad boy uh has me feeling pretty good has me feeling pretty good uh could smell better but uh feeling dry thanks randy craft BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. 